You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Jake can't afford the Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. I just want to know what he represents. The man is infested with disciples. I'm the apostle. Just like me and God. How could you tell us apart? Patrick's new movie? The other side of the wind. What's that about the movie? We don't talk about the movie. So you old guys are trying to get with it. Is that what this movie's about? Well, we don't actually know. What do we know? Jake is just making it up as he goes along. He's done it before. Movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Mr. Hannaford, could you please slow down? Mr. Hannaford! What he creates, he has to wreck. It's a compulsion. Want me to bring you another spot? <laughs> we'll have our own movies. Our real movies. The other side of the movie. Well, here it is, if anybody wants to see it. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Ken Stanley. Mike, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me back. And I have to tell you that uh, usually I'm invited by people to stop talking about Orson Welles, so this is a rare treat. Also back in the booth is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Well, this is Mr. Hannaford's night. Could we save some of the questions for him, huh? On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind. Way back in May 2015, four years ago, it was still something of a dream that this film would ever get completed and shown to the world. There were rumors, but there had been rumors before. Before diving into this episode, it might be funny to go back and listen to the previous one, because we're talking about a film that had been written about, discussed, and partially seen, but no complete film was available until last year, 2018. We will talk a bit about the tumultuous path to completion, but more than anything, we'll be talking about the completed work itself, so be warned, there are spoilers ahead. I can't start off with my customary question about when you guys first saw the film because no one could see the film until 2018 when it showed up on Netflix, unless you were one of the lucky folks who went and saw it theatrically. I missed the Blink and You'll Miss It run at the Michigan Theater, and I'm curious, did either of you guys happen to see it at the Michigan? I did, and I gotta beg to differ with you a little bit because I'm a big Orson Welles fan, as I indicated earlier, and so I recall seeing the clips that were shown i didn't see the whole thing until it dropped last november but over the course of the years i'd seen roughly 70 plus minutes of other side of the wind material so in that regard i was kind of prepared and i kind of knew what to expect i did see it in ann arbor it was an uncomfortable experience i had already seen it on netflix previous to that it was the following week that I saw an NRA, and it was, wasn't the big screen. It was a mezzanine, so six times the size of my television set, so it wasn't that big of a deal. And I had to pee halfway through it, and it was just a mess. It wasn't a great experience. Is that why it was uncomfortable, is the need to urinate? Yeah, it was one of the reasons why it was uncomfortable. 
lady with a bouffant hairdo in front of me, too. So, you know. We are not in Baltimore. Why is there a bouffant hairdo in Michigan? <laughs> I just made that up. I don't know if I can trust anything now. We may as well just cancel this whole thing. If he's not going to be truthful about who was sitting in front of him, I mean, come on. Well, thanks, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection Oh, wait, no. I guess we should continue, even with Ken's questionable history here. During the next hour, everything you'll hear from us is really true and based on solid facts. How about you, Rob? Did you see it at the theater or did you just see it on Netflix? No, just Netflix. And I watched it in a uh, sort of one after another with the uh, the Love Me When I'm Dead doc, which I think we're going to talk a little bit about. I felt like when I watched it the first time, I was either ill-equipped or didn't appreciate it and actually grew to appreciate it on watching the, the Love Me When I'm Dead doc and then going back to rewatch it again. So it's not a film, at least for me, that I liked the first time I saw it. I thought, hmm. Maybe it was because there was too much built up. Maybe because at the time I was looking at it, I go, what am I looking at? And the more that I got into it and started to kind of deconstruct what's in there and why there's certain things and stuff like that, it, it, it started to hit me more and I started to appreciate it more. Well, most of Wells' films, from my perspective anyhow, he it kind of expects you to meet him halfway. And that was one of the things I was... I really wasn't anti- – I anticipated seeing the film for myself, but I was conscious of the fact that it's not a film for a casual audience. And so I was worried about how it was going to be received to a certain extent. And just the idea that it had become a new story. You know, it wasn't just a movie. It was popping up on uh, people's uh, home pages and stuff, and it was a – it become a news story. Netflix poured $6 million into the whole thing. I'm sure that they wanted to get as many people watching it as possible, but it isn't a mass audience type of film. And so I was kind of concerned about how it was going to go over because of that idea that usually Wells makes films that you have to revisit if you're going to really learn to appreciate or, or get a better understanding of them. I've got issues with it and I've, and I have mixed feelings about it, but it's challenging and provocative, and I wouldn't expect anything less from a Wells film. Yeah, Netflix really wasn't doing, uh, you know, hey, please don't do the other side of the wind challenge posts or anything. No, I mean, it wasn't beat you over the head type of promotion, but at the same time, you know, like I said, more than anything else, it had become a news story. So people are going to be attracted to seeing that. What's this Orson Welles thing? Because a casual audience, and that's perfectly fine. You know, you come home from a hard day in the uh, coal mine or whatever, and you want to watch a movie. All right, I've done my job. I've sat down. I've turned on the TV. Now you make me feel good, you know, and this is just not that kind of a film. No, and if I ever have one complaint about Netflix, it's that they don't necessarily advertise stuff enough or the right way, because I will hear about things months after they're on, and then people will start to talk about it. Or they just won't, and there's just recently watched an episode of Red Letter Media where they're talking about a movie, and they're like, yeah, just happened to find this on Netflix. It was actually pretty good. Don't think it would have survived theatrically, but Netflix has put no dollars behind actually promoting this thing, so there's a lot of that stuff. But yeah, as opposed to this one where it was just all over the place, and this is not, you know, I don't want to sound like some sort of elitist asshole, but this is not the movie that you sit down with mom and dad and pop on on a Sunday afternoon. You got to be really paying attention to this 
right off the bat, it is just hammering you with edits and it kicks in very fast. But like other Orson Welles films, they are talking about a character that you don't see for the first, what is it, like 13, 14 minutes or even more? It's just like over and over and over again, we're hearing about Jake Hannaford and we don't really ever see the guy until we're already into the film. And it's like, oh, okay, this is who you're talking about. And if you don't necessarily know the, the gist of this, like you, me, and Rob, we're coming to this already prepared for a lot of this. But if you're just a casual viewer, to your point, flicking it on after that long day at the coal mine, then yeah, what the fuck is happening in this movie? Coal mining is a wonderful thing, Father. Yeah! But it's something you'll never understand. <laughs> The more that I watch Wells' films, it's that sort of lead-in for the character seems to happen over and over again. That's Citizen Kane. That's the third man, even though he didn't direct third man. Touch but, of Evil is pretty dramatic intro to Hank Quinlan as well. Yeah, so there's always this lead-in of this person who's rumored or talked about and all of this stuff, and then they appear. And and it's kind of the same thing with this, is that we have all of these stories, and Mr. Hannaford this, and Mr. Hannaford that, and Jake wants this, and Jake wants that, and, and everything is all about him. It's all about his world. But even before we get to that point... It's fascinating, too, to watch the, the, the small documentary. It's, I don't know, it's like 40 minutes or something like that. A Final Cut for Orson, I think is what it's called. And that specifically talked about them creating this film in the edit and everything. And they talk about that voiceover that Wells was going to originally do, which has now been taken over, uh, in this case, by Peter Bogdanovich. The voiceover is good, but the problem is, is they modernized it with this discussion of cell phones. I'm just like, really, guys? Like, why did why does it have to be up to date with 2018? Why couldn't you keep it in in the time period of when this thing was supposed to be released? Meaning, you know, 1976 probably was the last footage you shot. That's funny. I didn't even pick up on that. That was long before cell phone cameras and computerized images. The choice of this material was an attempt to sketch a film likeness of the man himself as he looked. In, in that narration, the ideas, the premises is that we finally put together all this footage. And it was a way of validating the various different uh, cameras that were used, and which I find it be pretty interesting. I, I think speculation on my part that Wells was in a, such a situation as an independent filmmaker that when Gary Graver approached him and volunteered to be a cinematographer. Uh, he was a camera buff and wanted to work with Wells. And Wells probably said, you know, Gary, what kind of equipment do you have? 16-millimeter camera, 35, Super 8. What kind of film stock you got? I got film stock for all of it. Great, let's make a movie. And was, the situation was such that he may have said, like, hey, I've got $32. Let's get a couple rolls of Super 8 and make a movie, <laughs> you know. And the premise of the film that it was put together by documentary filmmakers and film students who were at the party, that's kind of brilliant to make your limitations to justify working on a shoestring that way. It's kind of brilliant to use that as a conceit. And that also plays into the whole idea of what, whatever we can get, we'll use. Yeah. And I mean, and there's part of that in, in this film that, you know, as I first watch it, like my first note is, and it's a remarkable how lacking it really is in in the two other documentaries that I mentioned about it. I mean, they touch on it briefly in uh, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. 
but I really don't think you can totally understand everything that's going on in here without taking a look at something like F for Fake. Because in a lot of ways, it seems like editorially and like you were talking about this sort of mash design aspect, that's what he did with that film. And that came out in 73. And I was trying to think of anything that kind of came before this, meaning, you know, he started shooting in 71. He had pickups 73, 74, I guess, with Houston and then the reshoots with um, Bogdanovich. I'm trying to think of any other film in the era that would have been as as oddly edited from multi-source in that way. And I can't really think of too many. I think a, a couple of things were at work when it came to the editing style of the film. One thing was just what I just got done mentioning. You may have been down to like, well, Orson got like maybe 20 seconds at the end of this roll of film. And they were using scraps and they were using whatever they could find. That would make sense. And once again, it would be like taking a limitation and turning it into a film style. Also, Wells was kind of like out in the wilderness and he felt he needed to make a splash stylistically. And he couldn't, he didn't have those cranes anymore, those dolly tracks. And it was the handheld stuff and the quick cutting that I think was his idea of like how he was going to make a, a stylistic splash. But instead of using kind of equipment that he had been used to using, it was doing handheld camera stuff. So how do you make handheld camera stuff different stylistically or make a artistic creative statement using uh, a stylish a stylistic splash using what he had at his disposal? And I think it was the quick cutting. The other aspect of that, too, is it's a way to frame out the difference between the film that was shot on the studio, meaning this sort of Antonioni parody, which I, I think he's probably referencing Zabriskie Point, and all of this stuff of the documentary. So it, th there is such a definite contrast between the two that there's no mistaking when he's cutting to the film that Hannaford's making. Right, and it also helps stitch together this whole idea of these disparate actors. I mean, we talked in the Othello episode about the guy who opens a door in one location and he walks through the door and he's basically in another country. And it's exactly the same thing here where you have all of these characters who are nowhere near one another in time or space. And the way that he shoots it, he is able to bring these people together and actually make it seem like they are having a conversation across years, across distances, all of these things because of the way that he's doing this quick cutting and the way that he is framing this thing out as well. The other thing that I like about the editorial in here, uh, sound-wise, is how um, at the party there's people finishing each other's sentences. You know, So I, I thought that was good, sort of the, 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 the real sort of effect of kind of being in the room and kind of overtaken by this exuberance of these uh, various film students and hangers-on who are all really excited to be there. If memory serves, this whole movie really takes place over the night of a party. I mean, that that is the majority of the action is this party and what's going on and how it changes and all of these different perspectives, kind of again, like Citizen Kane, but different perspectives on Hannaford and getting different parts of the story as we go along. And then, yeah, also cross-cutting with the movie within the movie. Let's watch dailies. Let's watch rushes. You know, oh, this guy's watching this over here. So we're able to piece together that movie as well as seeing these other bits all told through this party stuff. The movie within the movie 
is supposed to be, it's deliberately enigmatic and elliptical, but in a way, so is the rest of the movie. The idea that this is thing that's standing out as something separate uh, is supposed to be this oddity or whatever, when within the context of the film, it does break things up pretty nicely. It gives you a certain amount of relief, all the quick cuts, and then there are longer takes in the film within the film as a different environment. It's contrast. It doesn't play as being any less or any more unusual than that which is surrounding it. I think there's basically only really eight scenes, eight settings. It doesn't travel around the world or anything. It's at the party, the film within the film. You can break it up, say some of it's in the backyard, some of it's in the screening room, some of it's in the living room. But there really isn't, there's a party going on. And through the course of that party, uh, we get to the crux of the major relationships in the film. Plot-wise, story-wise, and all that, there really isn't a lot to it. Individual interrelationships between the people, that's where the crux of the matter is. Mm -hmm. But in terms of story, there isn't much one to speak of. The thing that was interesting for me on this time of watching it, taking notes, knowing that I was going to talk to you guys, the first line that Hannaford says is, I need a drink. So I thought that was good. But the thing that's interesting with uh, his character, and I was thinking about this in, in multiple ways in terms of his name, there's been a lot of discussion of, well, is he Hemingway? Is he Wells? Is he Houston? The uh, other person that I thought of who died in a car wreck, who was considered a macho type guy, was maybe Jackson Pollock. I was thinking about the last name. Now, it's it's a slight different spelling, but I think that maybe Wells would have probably known this given his his interest in magic. And there's actually one of the oldest circuses in the world that dates back to the uh, 1600s is called the Royal Hennaford Circus. So the idea of this circus around him, I I think maybe may have been a, a slight notation as well, because I can't think of anyone with the exact same name uh, as the Houston character in here. Yeah. If I were to have, one criticism of this movie, it's that too much of this film, it will repeat what's going on on screen, and there are too many armchair people that are actually discussing the character of Hannaford throughout the film, so that it's really being presented to us in one way. And I, I particularly think of the Pauline Kale type character that uh, Susan Strasberg plays, Julie Rich. It seems like about once every 15 minutes she will stop and say, oh, he has this issue and he seems to fall in love with his leading men. And there's this you know, overtone of homosexuality. And she just seems to be telegraphing stuff to us too much where it's just like, okay, I kind of am already picking up on that. I appreciate you checking in on me and making sure that I'm okay, but I'm really getting this. It's it's all right. Men are the subject of his films, and whoever the man is, naturally, he's got a girl, right? And whoever she is, somehow, finally, Hannaford seduces her. He must. He has to possess her, because it's the only way that he can possess him. This is not Wells' final cut. They worked, I think, I mean, there was a three-hour rough cut from which they worked. I do think that anyone who loves Orson Welles and the people who worked on the film loves Orson Welles, they love Orson Welles, they would probably 
air when it comes to editing the film. They would air on the side of inclusion as opposed to exclusion because that was part of the man's legend is that he had all these movies mangled by other people who were taking out large chunks of films. So I'm thinking that they were very sensitive about what they were working with and how to give it weight. Personally, I would take out 15 minutes. The movie drags for me at a certain point, and I would do that myself. And I don't know whether Wells would have done it himself or not, but it's as much, if not more, of a Wells film than many of the films that did have large chunks taken out. But still, you can never say for sure exactly what he would have left in and what he would have excluded. And I think that we'll get a better understanding of that in the interview that's coming up that I'm looking forward to with Bob Murawski, the editor. It also makes me consider at the same time as you were talking about, Ken, sort of people editing his things after death, the considerations involved in this, say, versus the considerations involved with Walter Murch's work on Touch of Evil. Well, at least we do know that that came specifically from a 58-page memo that Wells had written and given to Universal Studios and says, well, if you're going to edit the movie and if you have me fired and thrown me out, please take these notes into consideration. When the restoration was done, Walter Murch did the restoration of that. He followed to a T uh, whatever he could to restore the film to at least the 58-page memo version. Because, you know, Wells had the whole thing to work with himself. That would have been different than the 58-page memo version. But Wells was reacting to Universal's cut. It's still so remarkable to me that he could just... I don't imagine he dashed that off, but that he had that recall to be able to do that. And I'm very positive that he had everything with this movie in his head. There were some things that were out there. I mean, you talked about those 70 minutes that you saw. I also saw a large chunk of this before going in. So that having seen that, I don't know about you, Ken, but having seen so much of this, having read so much about this, having talked to people with that previous episode... Watching The Other Side of the Wind on Netflix last year was a bit like having deja vu. I just felt like, okay, I've seen all this before. There's a little bit of connecting things. There's that very unfortunate scene of the CGI mannequins that are getting shot. I really choke on that CGI stuff. But I'm just like, can't you really take mannequins and shoot those in a real place? But anyway, otherwise, it was just like, okay, I feel like I've seen this all before. That's not a bad thing, necessarily. And that's definitely not everybody's experience. But for me, it was just like, all right, yeah, this is pretty much what I expected. You know, I didn't realize those mannequins were CGI'd until I watched that documentary. And then I go, oh, okay. My my eyes must be getting bad. <laughs> really don't have that much problem with that uh, It's interesting to note that uh i think it was bob morosky who said something to the effect that the movie wouldn't have been able to be finished at all 10 years ago that it required the new technology and recent technology in order to to finish the film at all some things may have had to have been done just to, to keep it as close to wells vision as possible well yeah i mean so much of the movie was just Missing. I mean, so much of the, they never did ADR on this stuff. So, of course, if there's any flubbed lines or if there's tracks that are missing, 
yeah, forget about it. So it was a wonder. So I, I, I feel a little guilty for complaining about those mannequins being shot, but at the same time, I'm like, that could be a practical effect in my opinion. But anyway, but the rest of it, I mean, I, I didn't pick up on Danny Houston's voice overdubbing his own father. I don't know if I watched it like five or six more times, if I'd be able to pick that up. I mean, you guys know me, I get really kind of sketchy when it comes to like ADR and stuff, so, but I was absolutely fine with that. I, I, really enjoyed the way that it was put together. It was just uh, occasionally there were times where it was just like, here's a signpost for anybody who's not following through with what's going on here. And that's what I was just like, yeah, like had uh, to, to your guys' point, maybe if he had seen this and then said, oh yeah, I'm really kind of like hammering home the point. I should really like relax that stuff and trim that out a little bit. But at the same time, maybe it just was his emotional state at the period i mean granted he's not around to defend himself but you know when you hear the interviews of people like like bogdanovich who talk about pauline kale and how upset wells was with her maybe it was just something that he really just wanted to make her look like a shrew it just like the character in here is great it's a good role but the character you can tell that he just really kind of wanted to put the screws to Pauline Kale. It is, as much as he would have denied it, there's no mistaking, this is strictly autobiographical. And he he had some axes to grind, and that's pretty apparent. It's one thing that sets it apart from the rest of his work. Uh, I do think it's it's a film that is of its time. You can take and categorize the rest of his filmography as a director pretty simply. You know, Kane and Ambersons are sagas. Rise and fall stories, they're about themes like power. And the themes that he created in all of his other films were tended to be universal. The Shakespearean films were pretty much the same thing, ambition and the psychological nature of Macbeth and Othello in particular. The film noirs were, you know, a stranger, lady from Shanghai, Mr. Arcade and Touch of Evil. They're underbelly of society and corruption the trial with Lady from Shanghai and Touch of Evil formed kind of like a loose uh, a trilogy of the law and morality and ethics and stuff. You know, these were universal themes. He was speaking to the world. But Other Side of the Wind seems to be about itself and about Wells. And that kind of sets the film apart from the, the bulk of his work. And it was a different time, too. It was in the air that kind of we went from rock bands with an altruistic hippie vision to singer-songwriters whining about their fifis. So that kind of thing was in the air, the, the self-referential type of work that was plentiful back then. It's also interesting to me that it's one of the least classically structured and shot films of his career. And as you said, part of it has to do with the fact that he didn't have any money, so he was kind of doing the garage band thing, trying to piece it together. But it's kind of amazing when you stack it up against a film that he did, you know, if we're going to talk about when he started shooting it 30 years earlier. And it's such a jump from, you know, the classical structure of Kane or or even Touch of Evil to a certain extent that I don't think anyone could look at and go, well, of course it was made by him. Doesn't look like it. This is one of the context that it's, it helps to, to look at the film in different contexts, like the context of, like created by his relationship with Oya Kodar, who had a great impact on him personally, 
his position within Hollywood and with the new Hollywood, which is giving him a great deal of frustration. At that time, in large part, to most people, he had become a clown. Ah, the French champagne. The man is buried in frozen peas. So I think that he really felt, damn it, I'm going to do something really radical. And I'm going to do something to show people that I'm not just a buffoon. But at the same time, I've got axes to grind. And so this is the result of all that. I have to disagree with the idea that you can't see that the guy who made Kane made this because Kane is very similar insofar as it's like the blind man with the elephant where it's just like, okay, here's this part of Kane. Here's this part of Kane. Here's this part of Kane. Now it's up to you, the viewer to put all of this stuff together. Who is lying? Who is telling the truth? Who is this man? And it's very similar to me anyway, as far as who's lying, who's telling the truth when it comes to Hannaford and you have all these differing voices and you don't necessarily like we hear from Hannaford but we don't necessarily get his side of the story sometimes it's not like people are coming to him with things he seems to buffet everything as far as like oh you know uh, how about what does the role with your father do with this and you know is the camera a, a phallus and all these you know horseshit kind of questions the one thing that that kind of going back and I, I feel like I'm picking on the movie now but Going back to this whole idea of this Pauline Kale character, I kind of wish that rather than her being so on the nose with everything and really saying what's happening in this movie, I kind of wish that she had she had been the clown and had completely been wrong. But instead, it feels like she's almost the narrator where it's like, oh, well, this happens and this happens and he always does this and he always does that. And it's like, well, she seems to be the, the voice of reason here as opposed to she should have been a lampoonish type of character, almost like the Mr. Pister character where he doesn't know what's going on. He's a young film student. He's asking ridiculous questions. I think her character should have been ridiculous as well. Well, it's interesting that, that you've got that perspective on the Julia Rich character because it reminds me of another scene earlier on in the film during the projection during the first time that Norman Foster takes the film to Max David. And I'm mixing a real-life actor's name with a character's name there. It's definitely going to happen in this movie, yeah. He shows some scenes to Max David in the screening room, uh, Robert Evans. At one point, the Robert Evans-type character says, uh, so the old man's trying to get with it. And this is an example of something I usually cringe at, because sometimes when you acknowledge a possible criticism, because someone could look at the film and say, the old man was trying to get with it. He anticipated a criticism, but he doesn't necessarily respond to it. He doesn't have an answer for it. And so is is he just copping out on the answer or is he just being, in a way, honest? And it could very well be that the criticisms that Julia Rich has, Wells may be just, it's an acknowledgement that she may have a point. The point that I meant to make in reference to Kane was more as if the film was shot by the guys who were actually, like if the whole film was a crazed version of the News on the March newsreel. I meant it more from sort of a, a formalist, like we're going to lock off the camera and here's the scene, move on to the next one. You know, This structurally, even though it is looking back on the life of a guy who has died through documentary and this other footage, I meant it more like in that classical, the way film was done when he was coming up. It is kind of an inversion of Kane in that you had the reporter Thompson 
interviewing different people who each had their own perspectives on Kane. And in this, you have different cameramen who are capturing different perspectives of Jake Hannaford. Well, it could have been really interesting is if we gotten to know those individual camera people. Say like, hey, I'm Bruce. I'm working with 16 millimeter in black and white. And I hate Hannaford. That type of thing. So whenever you saw Bruce, that would have really made it complicated. I know, but it would have added another layer. It would have been interesting. But just having the different cameras and the different footage, the different stock footage, I think is more of a technique than anything else. It seems like a, a documentary viewing of what was going on at a party. But also, in a way, it's like I've been to parties, and sometimes what I'm seeing looks like this movie. <laughs> I mean, he tries to do that a little bit with the introduction of some of the of the film writers and whatnot, and you know the various people on the bus and and them kind of talking through their perspective, including and I know he's on the show, so I'm looking forward to hearing his interview as well as Joe McBride. I think. I think he does a, a bang up job in here for not really being an actor and, you know, probably just playing himself at that time as a, as a young man. What's interesting to me is that there are these echoes to other films of the era. And I don't know if he was trying to be deliberate on it or not, or if he was, it was just what was available. <laughs> so personally, I'm wondering how he felt about Dennis Hopper. Because Hopper had just gotten done with Easy Rider, and he had received, as a result of Easy Rider, he got pretty much the RKO contract that Wells signed. You know, the, the do whatever you want, you know, within budget, within a reason, you know. So he's coming back to Hollywood, and he's singing to himself, my God, this is what's going on here is what exactly what I want and what I need. And... Seeing upstarts, you know, like a Dennis Hopper, what he must have been feeling at that time. Because this, you know, one of the rails, one of the things that Netflix has promoted the film on it is that it's Orson Welles' last film. And, of course, it wasn't. After Fake got made during the middle of the shooting of the, And he filmed, finished up with filming Othello in 79. But he was working on a lot of other projects. This should not have been. And, and at the age of 55, you're not sitting down and saying, I'm going to make my last great statement. You know, I was turned 55, seven years ago. I didn't say I'm going to write my last song, you know? Well, I don't know. Tarantino's coming up on his 10th movie. Fingers crossed that he quits making them after that. That comment is solely by the host, Mike White, and does not reflect on anyone else who is on the podcast. And Peter Greenaway is supposed to kill himself at the age of 70 when he turns 70. So who knows? But, you know, usually you just it should have been one of several films that he made during that era. And it had to have been frustrating because uh, he hadn't offered. He was involved possibly as the director of St. Jack. He was uh, given a chance to write uh, adaptation of Midnight Plus One. And it was inferred that he may be the director of that. He had a chance. Uh, Big Brass Ring was a screenplay he wrote. And they had interest for that as well provided he could get one of these six actors to play the lead role, and they all balked at it. And there was uh, Hal Ashby had interest in producing The Dreamers, and that fell through because he didn't like the screenplay. This idea that, that this was the only thing that, that he was doing is complete nonsense. He wrote other screenplays and had other plans, and he had so many irons and so many different fires, 
but it had to have been frustrating to see someone like a Dennis Hopper just get yeah, whatever you want, Dennis, you know, him having to, you know, work through all this to, to try to get this, at least this one film done. Well, I'm curious when he shot that stuff with Hopper, because there was the period of time where Hopper was the golden boy. And then there was the period of time just a few years later where he was the pariah after the last movie. So you could have a very different Dennis Hopper, depending on what year you shot that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot changed during that period of time. He was kind of like Wells for a little while there. He was driven out of Hollywood, basically, and just said, nope, we don't want you. We don't want any of this stuff. I mean, the thing that's fascinating to me is by the time he comes around to doing the reshoots, 74, I mean, that's the end of BBS, which (laughs) in a way was kind of the, I guess, maybe the kickstart for Wells to go, hmm, easy rider. Okay, that's what you want. Right, exactly. Yeah, he he outlived an entire era of filmmaking right there because he's there at the beginning of this project when, you know, the ho- new Hollywood is starting and then he is still doing it when Jaws and then Star Wars are coming out and changing the entire landscape. Even if he was on a timetable to have put this thing out by 76, it probably would have been dated. It would have looked like a film Henry Jaglum made. In 1971. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and it would have really befuddled people because it came out when it when it has come out. In a way, it kind of fits in with the mashup culture. All these different cameras. You see people using mashup, uh, uh, doing their own videos and stuff, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of today's uh, YouTube culture is basically composed of the whole idea of mashing things up. The only film that I can think of in my youth that got a major release that had multiple format in that way was Natural Born Killers. I was going to say JFK. Yeah, and, and JFK. But Natural Born Killers, to me, is, was a bit more memorable from the aspects of the various things that it did, but you are correct, yeah. But yeah, that's, what, 20-some, almost 30 years ago that those movies are coming out? JFK was 91. I can't remember. Natural Born Killers was, what, 94? 95? Okay. So we're, yeah. So by now we're used to this kind of stuff. And to your point, Ken, like having those hard cuts and stuff, uh, that seems to be the thing in YouTube videos that you do to make like the joke, you have the hard cut to something or you even cut off your own dialogue. And yeah, that kind of stuff is happening here in uh, other side of the wind, whether it's on purpose or by accident. And it's just like, okay, yeah, we are very familiar with this. I almost wonder if kids today, they look at this movie and they say, this is old hat, you know, or if they are just don't even realize that this would have been super avant-garde had this come out in the seventies. I think what this reminds me of actually, when it comes to that editing style, not necessarily the multi-format thing, but the editing style of what I saw when it came to the brief clips of Russ Meyer's autobiographical film that I don't think he ever completed. And then even some of Russ Meyer's editing techniques seem kind of similar to what Wells was trying to do here, because some of Meyer's editing was crazy. And that's what this was initially when I saw those early clips of Other Side of the Wind. I didn't know how he was going to hold it together, because it just felt like 
we were on a really rocky road on, you know, in an old jalopy and any moment now we're just going to careen off the cliff. I'm surprised that we managed to stay in the car and stay alive until the end of this, which is more than we can say about Jake Hannaford. I think the editing, the, the shots seem to be longer, the further along into the movie you get. At that point is when, if you're still with it, that's when things start to click. And I remember the first time I saw the film, once it gets to be steady, uh, it takes on a, a kind of a somberness. I don't know whether that was deliberate or it's just the whole idea of a, of a party unwinding. Things slow down. It's an increasingly awkward party. when it, And then it kind of just dies. And you feel like the fundamental truths of the drama between the characters start unfolding not so enigmatically and it starts to take hold. It's like you've had too much to drink and said too many true things that you wish you could take back. Exactly. And it feels like, you know, like the more I think about it, you know, he was trying to make this for the youth market doing air quotes. And then, like I said, if it was released in that period, it feels like an older person's film as it takes on that somber tone it really becomes kind of introspective and then it becomes kind of sexually weird because he's picking up on this teenage girl. I don't, it's not that I don't think people in their twenties who were film freaks in that period wouldn't have been interested in seeing it. I don't think they could have related to it as closely maybe as when they've gotten older. That's not to say that guys in their seventies want to pick up 14 year olds, just the sort of, I'm, am I at the end of my career? Cause I think that's what that is. I mean, it's kind of this, all this macho bravado, you know, I'm the tough guy kind of thing. And there's a part of him that's trying to deal with the fact that people have moved on, which in a way I think is kind of reflexive of how maybe Wells probably felt about himself. People had moved on. Well, that goes back to that screening room scene when the Max David character says the thing about the old man's trying to get with it. Huh? It, once again, I think he, he was aware of these issues when he was making the film. Oh, yeah. He was super aware of it. And the, the feeling of betrayal between the Hannaford character and the Otterlake character, the, the Peter Bogdanovich character who's played by Peter Bogdanovich, I mean, that is palatable. And that gets kind of uncomfortable when you're watching it and just seeing this open wound there as far as here you are, you have the world, you have screwed up some but you're still on top of it at this point and here i am the older mentor your skipper who is floundering and i feel like a complete chump and here you are with the beautiful blonde girl on your arm and here i am with nothing and that's the thing that's that's hard for me to watch sometimes and i don't know if he doesn't talk about it at least i haven't seen it really addressed in interviews because he doesn't want to, or he just thinks it would be bad form to say it. But in the interviews with, with Bogdanovich, he doesn't really seem to, to say anything about that relationship on the film versus the relationship in real life. I mean, a lot of people know what, you know, he tried to do for Wells, you know, brought him into his house and it caused a lot of problems. And the thing that's funny for me is that he knew he was making this film. I mean, he obviously had read the script and all of that stuff and made this, you know, those reshoots, like I said, were 74 
And I think he may have been living with him then and then definitely lived with him sometime after that. I, I don't know if he could put that connection together or he just said, nah, that's the art. That's not reality. Or I'm so enamored with, with my mentor. I'm so enamored with this, this genius of a, of a film director that I'm willing to kind of overlook those things. And that's what I need to do for myself. Well, those personal direct references to their relationship were in a script already. Bogdanovich chose to play himself then because as originally supposed to have been played by Rich Little, that role. So when Rich Little dropped out, Bogdanovich said, I'll do it. He was asking to make that more direct, asking to or volunteering to play Peter Bogdanovich for all intents and purposes. Has Bogdanovich owned up publicly to some of the bullshit that he did when he was younger? I mean, just the way that he fucked over Polly Platt, the way that he basically fucked over Sybil Shepard, his whole thing with Dorothy Stratton. I mean, he did a lot of really super skeezy stuff, and I don't know if he is okay with that or if he feels bad about that. I... Don't really, uh, I mean, I saw a documentary about Bogdanovich recently in which I, he would tacitly acknowledge any misgivings, but, you know, he seemed more interested in complaining about his, uh, the treat or Orson Welles treatment with, he complained about, uh, Orson not doing the screenplay for St. Jack, which would have gotten him the possibility to direct the film. He complained about Orson. Uh, there was a betrayal and on the Tonight Show or something when Orson was co-hosting, and he was talking with Burt Reynolds, and it seemed to badmouth Bogdanovich. And he was sensitive about some things, not as sensitive about uh, other things. But I, I think he comes across okay in that documentary, and I would tend to to think that you know Orson was a jerk a lot of the time. He really was. And But there are people who are willing to tolerate that. It's amazing. Gary Graver ended up in the hospital twice from exhaustion. Uh, so so there's nobody who's involved in this as an act, absolute saint. Yeah. Uh, if you Aside want to know maybe more. John Houston. <laughs> I just wanted to, for whatever reason, I don't, I mean, this is the last movie of a lot of different people. Uh, Michelle Legrand, uh, John Huston, Mercedes McCambridge, Dan Tubin, uh, Norman Foster. I mean, a lot of people. This movie is filled with dead people. And so it's fascinating as a document in that way. You're talking about restoring stuff, <laughs> restoring all these lives in, in, a, in a way. And John Huston, I don't. To me, why was this guy not in every fifth movie? You know, I just find him to be one of the most charismatic figures to put in front of a camera and, and his voice and that weathered face and everything is just so evocative. I just can't get enough of John Houston. He almost stole Chinatown from Jack Nicholson. You know, it's just I, I just think he's amazing. Houston's great in even bad movies like Myra Breckenridge or The Visitor. Yeah. But if if you want to know more about the, the, the St. Jack saga, I would advise people to check out our episode on that, because that one is kind of fascinating as well, and also a good film. I really, I really like St. Jack. 
All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a series of interviews. First up, you'll hear from fellow Michigander Bob Morawski discuss the arduous task of editing The Other Side of the Wind, something I kind of think the Academy should have recognized him for, especially compared to the editing of Bohemian Rhapsody, which took home the prize. Next up, we'll hear from one of the stars of The Other Side of the Wind, Mr. Pister himself, Joseph McBride. And last but not least, you'll hear from author Josh Karp, who we also heard from on our previous Other Side of the Wind episode. We'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Have a hunger for horror? A yen for Yelp yarns? Then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join Sordid Slime Slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series, Tales from the Crypt. Here's what the rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. <laughs> tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. You have nothing to lose except your life. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary from The Projection Booth, and I want to tell you about a humble guy you might have heard of before. It's my podcast partner. His name's Mike White, and he's got a new book out. It's called Cinema Detours, and I just want to tell you that the guy is so humble that he won't even talk about it on the show. He won't even ask you to go to our website, projection-booth.com, or go over to amazon.com and pick up either the paper version or, you know, the ones and zeros, the digital for your Kindle. He won't ask you to do that. That's how humble he is, but I think you need to do it. You want to know why? Because it's a great read, and especially with the movies that you've seen before, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend and having a good laugh. And as for the movies that you haven't seen, well, i got to throw a beat down on Mr. White because he's now expanded my list probably another hundred films that I need to see. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it at Amazon.com, either in paper form or for your Kindle. And, of course, you can always get more information about this book and the Projection Booth podcast at Projection-Booth.com. It's Cinema Detours. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. Up first, we're going to hear from Bob Morawski. I talked with Bob for a long time, and this is just the section where we talk about 
the other side of the wind, there is a bonus episode that is available, which is just about 45 minutes long, where we talk about kind of the early days here in Michigan, his work on Spider-Man, his work on the Medieval Dead, Army of Darkness, and even Ash versus the Evil Dead. So there's a lot of great stuff in there. I highly recommend it. But for now, here's Bob talking about the other side of the wind. So we fast forward 20 some years and now you are Oscar winning editor, Bob Murawski. How do you get approached to take on what I would think would be one of the most daunting tasks, maybe in the editing world? I mean, the only other editor that I can think of in recent memory is Walter Murch redoing Touch of Evil. And now here you are working on the other side of the wind. What's that call like? The call was a call that I made. <laughs> I think they offered it to, to Merch, and he turned it down. They had actually hired a, 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 another editor, this guy named Alfonso Goncalves, who had um, cut some Jim Jarmusch movies and uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild and more indie, artsier kind of stuff. But I, I, I actually pursued the movie because I really wanted wanted to do the movie, mostly because um, I was friends with Gary Graver, the cinematographer. When my wife and I uh, bought, bought a house in Studio City right after I finished Spidey 1, after living here a couple months, I discovered that uh, Gary was living three houses down from us. And um, I was a huge fan of his because I'm a huge fan of exploitation films. And Gary shot hundreds of like these kind of drive-in movies, all the, all the Al Adamson movies like Satan Sadists and Horror of the Blood Monsters and um, shot a lot of stuff like Toolbox Murders and, you know, all these like really cool uh, 70s exploitation films. I mean, he was like the, the, the main guy having this long career of shooting just like dozens of movies that I was like a big fan of. So when I met him, uh, the first time I went into his garage, I saw that he had a, a big film rack of all, all these boxes that said Orson Welles production, Other Side of the Wind. I, I guess I, at like one point I had heard that he had like worked with Wells, but I I didn't really understand the involvement of it. So I said, you worked with Orson Welles, right? And he goes, he goes, are you kidding? I, he said, I shot everything that Orson Welles made from like 1970 until he died in 85. He said, I was Orson Welles' was, uh, cameraman for like every one of his projects, including uh, that movie, Other Side of the Wind. Of course, I'd heard of Other Side of the Wind, so um, but Gary had it in his garage. And so, for, so for a couple of years, I was always pestering him. I was always saying, hey, Gary, you know what? As soon as I finish, uh, I think I was on Spidey Three at the time or something. I said, you know, when I finish Spidey Three, we got to get together. We got to, you know, get, get 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 that movie out, and we got to, you know, get it done. We got to finish it, man. It's Orson Welles' last movie. Gary went, oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I knew he had been trying to finish it, you know. And 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 look, it was like more wishful thinking on my part that we could do that because, like, knowing what I know about the movie now, it would have been so impossible, you know, given given everything I know about all the financial issues and all the legal issues and the fact that the negative was like locked up at a you know, vault in Paris and everything else. But, um, you know, I really just thought it would be cool to work with Gary on that movie and like get Orson Welles' final film finished. But then, um, sadly, when I was on Spidey 3, um, Gary had had cancer, throat cancer, and it, and it came back and he actually, he passed away. And, it, you know, it was really sad. And um, I, th- I thought, well, geez, I guess, um, I don't know what's going to happen to that Orson Welles movie, but, you know, I doubt if I'll ever get another chance to work on it. But then last year, um, you know, I had heard that uh, Netflix was re- reviving the project. So I really um, petitioned to get on it. First, I found out that uh, this guy, Dove Samuel, who works with me as my assistant editor and has worked with me the last uh, 
five or ten years, um, had been hired onto the movie to organize all the all the film, all the footage. He called me one day and he, he said, "Hey Bob, are we starting any movie anytime soon?" He goes, I, "I have a job offer and I'm wondering if I should take it." And I said, "Well, I don't really have anything." I said, "What's the movie?" He goes, "Oh, it's this old movie, this old unfinished Orson Welles movie." That um, you know, Netflix is is financing the completion of it. And I said, "Are you kidding me? I know all about that movie." I said, "I said you got to talk to those guys. If, you, if you're going to be on the movie, keep pushing me. Get get me on." And he goes, "Well, wow, man, I'm sorry, but you know they've already hired this guy Alfonso." And uh, he said, "I don't, I, you know, I, I don't think you'll be able to get on." But uh, he goes, uh, uh, "Well, he said, I'll let you know if anything happens." So last last summer, I was at. Um, my mom's place in, in, in Michigan, in Port Austin, and um, I got an email from Dove saying, hey, you know, that, that guy Alfonso dropped out of the movie. You should you should uh, have your agent call the, the people, um, you know, Frank Marshall and these guys, and try see if you can uh, get on somehow. So I emailed my agent, and um, he set up a, a meeting with, uh, you know, me and Frank Marshall and, and Philip Rimser, the other producer, and... Uh, I went in and I just like like laid it on really thick, you know. I said said I was friends with Gary and have a distribution company and, and I do a lot of film restoration, so I really have a strong background in like you know dealing with old stuff and um you know and I really uh, hammered them really hard to try to get the movie. They seemed nice, but I, when I got out of the uh, meeting, I actually felt like they thought I was too mainstream or something, you know, because I knew they were going to hire this guy who had cut the Jim Jarmusch movies and. Um, you know, here, here, here I'd done all these like big studio movies, like the Spider-Man movie. So I really kind of psyched myself out of the job. I mean, I got I, I I left the interview like really super depressed, and I just really thought that you know they weren't going to hire me. But then the next day I got a call saying that you know they wanted to bring me in to do the show. So then it was the part of actually having to do the movie. You know. Well, I can't imagine the the cataloging and the footage because I've heard all the stories about how they would shoot this day and that day and two years later and three years later. The good news is that's why I got the job because when when all the footage came back from from, um, Paris, everything was in such a disarray and there was so much stuff that it just took five times as long. Like everything on this movie took five times as long as anybody would think. And this guy, Alfonso, the the guy who they had hired, said, look, I can't wait anymore. I have to take another job. I've been waiting for a couple of months and I've got another offer. And he goes... He said, you know, I still want to do it. Maybe I can, you know, do this movie and I'm going to do it in New York and just like work on the other side of the wind on weekends or whatever. And they, fortunately, they said, no, that's not going to work out. But yeah, I mean, there was, there was a huge amount of footage. And, and even when I got hired in August, I went, I was ready to start right away, you know, like the next day. And they had such a tight deadline for getting it done because they were trying to get it done for the Cannes Film Festival, which was in May. I said, look, you guys, we, we need to start right away. And they said, well, we, we can't. The stuff, the footage is, in such a disarray, these guys still have to spend a couple more months even getting it ready so you can start cutting. I couldn't even start until, I, I ended up not starting until the end of October. It was super stressful because, you know, I just, I knew how much stuff there was and I knew how complicated it was. And, and, and it was because, I mean, it was shot over a period of six years between 1970 and 76 and stop and start every different format, 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, color reversal, some Super 8, and everything was just very disorganized because it was so stop and start and the horse kept working with different crews and he was shooting on short ends and, and to give you an idea of what a mess it was, all the stuff that he was shooting in 16 millimeter, he wanted to be able to edit in 35 millimeter because he, you know, he had this mixture of 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter. 
so back then it was it's not like it was now where now you can you just did digitize everything and put it in the app and, and you can work I mean back then in order for him to be able to edit 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter together he first had to blow up all the 16 millimeter to 35 millimeter so it all had to go through an optical printer to, to make it the same film size so he could even edit it so what he did was um they didn't want to pay for blowing up all the footage. So what he did was um, he went through all the reels of dailies and just cut out the pieces that he thought he might be using for the edit, building like, you know, a select roll. So there would be like three or four different readings of each line and all the stuff kind of strung together sequentially. And then somebody had the bright idea in order to save money that they would just blow up that footage. So what they did was they had a negative cutter cut all the original negative to basically match the pieces that Orson had chosen. But in doing so, uh, all the slates were cut off. You know, so there was, you know, the, the identifying slates at the beginnings of the roles weren't part of the selects. So all the, all the, all that footage had gotten separated and, and pre-cut. And that's where we were working from. So if you can imagine, like, just trying to find anything, it's, it was already cut into all these little pieces and, and a lot of it wasn't identified and, and it was just, uh, it was, it was chaos. And, and, you know, he was working with these non-professional crews who didn't even have a system for sliding things properly when they were shooting. So a lot of the footage wasn't even identified on, the, even if there was a slide, it wasn't identified as a scene number, like scene 23, right? It was, it was, it was identified as studio bus or, um, mafia one or, um, wagon master or, or these like really abstract, semi-descriptive names of the scene, but not the, the scene number itself. So just from an organizational point of view, it, it was it was a it was a nightmare. What was your blueprint for all this stuff? Um, there was a shooting script, which is the good news. Uh, Orson had, had written there was a complete script, yeah, but you know the script he had deviated a lot from the script. But uh, was, the script is pretty much what the movie is. But then as as he shot over many year period, you know he would shoot things and reshoot them and change things and uh, do different versions, and a lot of that was never really documented. Before I started, I received the most recent version of the script, which was, I think, dated 1975 or 6. But I really wanted to see, like, earlier versions to see where things came from. And and all the um, old versions of the script and all of his paperwork for the movie was actually at the um, University of Michigan Library in Ann Arbor, your alma mater. <laughs> so uh, they have the whole Orson Welles Library archives in their library. So... Um, uh, we sent a uh, researcher to go pull like anything that they could find on the um, other side of the wind. So I got all these scans of like 10 different versions of the script and all of this, of course, this paperwork from the time and all of his memos and notes and um, letters to the editors who he was working with. And But I mean, even, even though I went back and read all these different drafts of the script, the script really didn't change much. So he shot a lot of things and changed a lot of things, but it never really got documented into a new draft, unfortunately. So a lot of it just required looking at it and then trying to figure out what the intention was. Oh, and, you know, just saying he was he was unhappy with, um, you know, the way that um, that dialogue was, was delivered by this person, so he brought in a different actor to do that line. Or maybe he just had a buddy of his who he wanted to give a line to. So he took one of the lines from another character in the scene and gave it to this other guy. Whether he intended to use it or not, I mean, that's another story. But, um, you know, he, Orson was a guy who just always liked to just keep shooting. You know, if he, if he had uh, an opportunity to work with somebody that he wanted to work with or a location, he would just, you know, get a crew together, get Gary Graver together and a couple of guys and just go shoot it. He 
it was a really fluid process that he had when he was making this movie. And it was all, all, almost shot like a student film. You know, real real uh, indie style, um, just um, skeleton crew, like a indie film in the, in the truest sense of the word. Mostly self-financed and um, just really um, run-and-gun kind of shooting. And that's the thing. There was, so there was a lot of footage. I mean, we had over a thousand cans of, of negative. And I think it was about 96 hours of footage. But because it was Orson Welles, I mean, a lot of it, there were multiple takes. So a lot of take after take after take after take after take trying to get, you know, get something right. Um, either like a, a cool like camera move or rack focus shot, you know, during in the film within the film stuff. Or sometimes it was just um, getting a, getting a better reading from the actors. You know, he was working with a lot of pro- professional actors, but he was working with guys who you know weren't necessarily actors, like Norman Foster, who was primarily a director. You know, had directed Journey into Fear and and had had sort of a long career as a as a director, but as one of the co-stars of the movie. And um, you know, Orson really worked with him a lot to try to get the performance correct. You know, just subtle nuances for each line and. Um, facial expressions and things like that. So, I mean, for me, one of the most exciting parts was to actually look, watch the dailies and hear Orson direct the actor and um, really hear his process and, and how he would, um, in, in a real elegant, subtle way, get the performance that he was trying to get by shooting take after take after take and really, uh, you know, fine-tuning that performance. So do you hear him say, that's the one, or are you making the decision to say, that's the take? Sometimes he would say that, but sometimes... You could tell he was saying that because he hadn't really, he was just frustrated, wanted to move on sometimes. So maybe like an earlier take was better. It was always his voice all the way through, you know, laughing, um, responding to what the actors were doing, calling cut, you know, saying things like, um, you know, I want a more subtle, um, less movement of the face, even less, you know, um, quieter with the voice. I mean, he was always trying to tone down the performances and make them more subtle with, with a lot of the actors because, you know, not. And actors tend to um, overact. So he was like very specific in terms of like, less, you would say things like less voice, you know, and to really get a more natural performance. It was just great to, to hear him in the editing room, like working, you know, and it really felt like like we were working together, you know, to, to hear that, to hear him direct the actors. It's funny because it's, a, uh, you know, it's a, a lot of the same stuff I hear from directors like Sam, I, I, he and Sam have a very similar way of working with actors. I, mean, I, I would see Sam do the same thing on his movies to try to get performances, just really beat by beat going through and trying to get these subtle differences from one take to the, the next, knowing that in editing, you know, you would take one piece from this take, one piece from that take, if that's what it took, you know, to get a, to get a really good performance out of an actor. And that kind of patience of dealing with the actors. You know, he and Sam and Orson are actually was surprised to, to, to hear them both direct because they were a lot alike in terms of the, the specificity. Uh, and I guess that's what makes a good director. I mean, it's really all those tiny little details, like, you know, thousands of them every day. Well, yeah, literally thousands and especially thousands of pieces of film. I mean, the editing style of that movie. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, when I first saw it, when, when, when Gary first showed me those scenes, I was actually a little put off by it. it just seemed so choppy and, and um, such a strange way of doing it that originally I was thinking, well, geez, Gary must have been like cutting the stuff because I knew you know, nothing against Gary, but I knew Gary's background was like, you know, these exploitation films and, and it just seemed like so different than what I would have expected from Orson Welles that I actually, you know, thought that somebody else must have cut the stuff. But then 
But I mean, that was it was it was so hard to watch the stuff like back then when he had it because it, they were these old work prints that were all faded and scratched up and you know jumped every, at every splice and you know the prints were so dirty and the sound was so bad that it was really hard to to, to judge how great the material was. But when we went back to negative on everything and now seeing everything pristine, it, it, it all looks really beautiful. I mean, the photography is incredible. I mean, Gary's photography is like so so beautiful, and and, and even or some kind of crazy editing. I mean, I could really see what he was trying to do. And I think it actually, it's very unconventional, but I think it, in, in its own way, it flows really well. He was basically trying to compensate for a lack of being able to shoot these long, elaborate, beautiful shots, which he he did, Citizen King, of course, but Touch of Evil famously. And, you know, that style of filmmaking where he would do every, sort of everything in camera with, with uh, two or three minute long, you know, completely blocked tracking and crane shots and things like that. Well, he could never do He couldn't do those kind of shots anymore because he was working in this low budget world where he didn't have access to, uh, you know, cranes and, and those kind of dolly grips who could uh, achieve a shot like that. And, and cameramen who could, you know, deal with, uh, with, uh, those kind of elaborate in camera shots. So, you know, he sort of developed a different way of working, which was more like editorial based, you know, you're really trying to make that same sense of movement, but through like, you know, Going, moving from one cut to the other in rapid, rapid succession. I mean, it was something I could actually see when I was sort of breaking the stuff down, but then I read so much. Um, it'd be, it'd be, because I couldn't start for three months, I basically used that time to, to do a huge amount of research on Orson Welles and his movies. I got every book about Orson Welles that I could find and read all of them and read all the interviews and, and rewatched all the movies and watched all the extras on all the Criterion discs and everything else and really um, wanted to, uh, you know, get inside of his head since he wasn't around and, and understand, you know, what he was doing thematically and filmmaking-wise and, and just where he was in that point of his career, you know, in the 70s versus where he started in 1941 with Citizen Kane. And it just became a whole different approach to filmmaking because he didn't have the, the, the greatest technicians and studio equipment at his disposal like when he made his first movie i mean he really started at the top had access to like the best crews and the best equipment in the world and then by the point time he was doing the other side of the wind he was making it like a student film he just developed a different way of, of working which was sort of more of an editorial based way and he actually talks talked about it in a few um interviews that i had read with him you know, it was good to sort of understand where he was coming from. And then, and then seeing F for Fake, you know, which he had made around the same time, which stylistically has a lot of the same kind of editorial decisions and ways, you know, visual ways of working. So you said that the footage was in pretty darn good condition, the audio as well? Well, the footage was, not, in not, I mean, because it had been stored in a lab in Paris for 40 years, you know, it was it was, it was actually in, in remarkably good condition. There, was, there were still some things that were problems. I mean, some some of the footage had not been stored as well. It was with um, Oya Kodar in, in Croatia. Some of the later stuff, and you know, it had been stored properly. That had you know mold and vinegar, vinegar syndrome and stuff like that. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the negative was, was was beautiful. Aside from being like pre-edited, you know, and having the slates cut off and chopped up, but but it was really clean and it was like pristine. But um, the sound, we were not so lucky. Most of the sound. Most of the original sound recordings that were recorded on set, the quarter-inch Nagra tapes, were lost at some point. We still haven't found them. We don't know where they are. I mean, part of the problem was that nothing was ever marked Orson Welles or Orson Welles production or even Other Side of the Wind. It was 
everything was always labeled with like Gary Graver Productions or GG because he didn't want people to know that it was an Orson Welles movie because, um, you know, he was just trying to uh, keep a low pro- profile and keep the costs down. So they never really put his name on anything. And even when they were shooting, I mean, when they would get permits, that somebody else would get the permit and they would keep reusing the same permit over and over again because they were, it was so low budget or they would shoot without a permit. And um, if the police or somebody showed up, Orson would go like hide in a closet or, and uh, they would they would all just say that they were, you know, USA students shooting film tests because they didn't, if people knew Orson Welles was involved, they would, they would perceive it as being a much bigger thing, which it wasn't. So, I mean, that, that, but that really hurt us because, like, the, the sound at some point got lost, and it was probably left at some facility, some transfer house, um, to, to get transferred to MAG or, you know, whatever when they were editing. In the 40 years since, you know, the, the place probably went out of business decades later, and then somebody saw this stuff that said, you know, GG Productions or Gary Graver or, or whatever, and... and didn't think this stuff was valuable. If it would have said Orson Welles, they would have held on to it. But, you know, if, if, if a place was going out of business, it probably just got tossed. We didn't find most of the sound. Consequently, our source for most of the sound were like third or fourth generation dupes, like work track, uh, magnetic film work track that Orson had been using for editing, which was all chopped up and scratched up and dirty, or old videotapes that had video transfers of some of the edits. Uh, a lot of our our sound was actually sourced from an old Bain SP tape that was made in the 90s. You know, it wasn't transferred. It was just transferred like work track, and there was there was a lot of hums in it and noise and tape noise, and those sources actually became our master sources for the sound. So it made it really difficult because um, a lot of the sound, you know, wasn't that well well recorded probably to start out with because he was dealing with student crews and bad equipment, but. Uh, then multiply that by two or three generations of like you know bad sound transfers. I mean, you can imagine how terrible it was. Uh, so that was just another thing that made the process really difficult. And luckily, we had the best sound guys in town working on it, doing the restoration. Our mixer was Scott Milan, who's like a multi—I think he's won like four Oscars—and so he was our sound mixer. We had a guy named Daniel Faxwell, who was our sound supervisor. You know, between the two of them, they just. Um, it was a labor of love for everybody, so that no no one was get, getting paid hardly anything. But they really, everybody wanted it to be perfect because it was Orson Welles. So they really um, did a huge amount of work cleaning up these really bad tracks, you know, trying to salvage the stuff. But it, you know, it made it tough for me editing wise as well because a lot of things we couldn't find. So I was having to edit a lot of it without sound because we couldn't find we didn't have the original tracks at all. All I had were, were work tracks that may have not even been the same take that I was look, looking at. So a lot of the footage I actually had to edit silently, even if it was dialogue, and uh, learn how to read lips. And then try to find that track somewhere else. Uh, you know, we had access to all the old work trims. You know, from, from when Orson was editing, we had all of his work, work picture and work track, but everything was in a real disarray. You know, everything was chopped up in pieces. And so I had, I had a, guy, a friend of mine, uh, a guy named Paul Hart, going through full-time all the rolls of film and mostly the, the soundtrack, just trying to find words and, and pieces of words and 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 sentences and, and missing sound for all these scenes. So it was just another part of the job that really made it a job that was already difficult. It made it even like five times more difficult because um, you know we just some sometimes we didn't know if we would ever find it. Uh, some lines we never found, and, and we had to um, bring in sound lights. You know because usually when you're 
finishing a movie and, and if there's a problem with the audio, you can bring the actor back, you know, to get into a booth in the studio and re-record the line of dialogue. But because this was a movie that was made over 40 years ago, most of the act- actors were dead, of course, and uh, the few that were around, were their voices had changed too much. You know, you know Peter Bogdanovich was still around and has a lot of lines in the movie, but his voice sounds so different now than it, it did back in 1974 or what, whenever it was. We had to hire impersonators. To um, we auditioned a lot of people. We gave, we you know we gave them examples of uh, dialogue from the movie, and they would practice it. And I would pick they would, the dialogue. There's there's companies that are, have like loop groups, and there are groups of people who can uh, fill in like background stuff in movies. So we we reached out to all the loop groups and said, you know, hey, we we really need impersonators who can listen to this stuff and really do a really super accurate. Uh, impersonation of, of this character on screen, you know, be it P- Peter Bogdanovich or Norman Foster or Mercedes McCambridge or Cameron Mitchell or any of these guys. I mean, the, the one we got lucky, luckiest with was um, uh, John Houston because we had his son Danny Houston, who's an actor, and Danny you know, <laughs> is able to do this like incredible impersonation of his father. So we brought him in, and, and he actually recorded like pretty much everything in the movie, you know, impersonating his dad. But it's funny because when you when you hear it, I, the impersonation actually sounds really good because he can really imitate his dad and he can do the cadence and everything. But he still doesn't have that voice that was like abused from years of like whiskey drinking and cigar smoking, you know. So there's a definitely a difference. But we always knew that we just wanted to try to use it sparingly wherever we absolutely needed to. So we really tried to find stuff, tried to clean it up as much as possible, and sometimes we still got stuck having to use a word here or a couple places a full line because we couldn't find anything but uh, I would say for the most part um, 95% of it is the original production sound and uh, it's really the the, the uh, work of the sound crew that made it happen because I mean it, it was just I, I just think I, I think a few a few years ago ago maybe it wouldn't have even been possible to finish the movie because of the technology that we were using now to actually fix up the stuff and restore it you know a lot of it was even it was beta versions that didn't even exist a year ago it was a huge process from like every, every every angle. I mean, creatively, technically. I mean, it was just um, it was it was a tough job. What sounds like not just one jigsaw puzzle, but like a second jigsaw puzzle laid over it that had to match up exactly as well. Yeah, and and where you didn't even know what the puzzle was, you know, what it was supposed to be, you know, sometimes because, like I said, some of the, some of the stuff wasn't even documented in the script. So it was always a matter of like figuring it out and just figuring out what the intentions were of, of all these reshoots, you know, because he kept shooting and reshooting. And, and like I said, sometimes I didn't even know why he was reshooting something. And he may have just been shooting it because he wanted to try something different. But, you know, whether he would have used it or not, it's another story. Um, some things were pretty clear, but um, but it was always trying to figure out the intentions of, of this um, footage that was uh, a lot of which was undocumented. You know, going through his papers, I mean, that was the thing. We really found a lot of paperwork at the University of Michigan Library in the, in the Orson Welles archives. And a lot of um, letters and things written about to people about the movie, to his editors and things like that. And we were always looking for that, like like the 58-page manifesto that he wrote about Touch of Evil. You know, where he really went through point by point and talked about what he wanted to do. You know, we never found anything like that. There were There were a lot of, like, you know, letters to telegrams and things to his editors working in Paris and things like that. 
but it was all always like technical stuff. It was like always like complaining that they weren't uh, they were building the reels too large or things were out of sequence or he didn't like the way they were making the splices or you know just petty like technical complaining, but never really anything that was about the intention. We didn't find anything, and, and then I thought, well, really, why would we? You know, he was always pre- planning on ed- editing the movie himself. He wanted to edit, so why would he actually sit down and like write notes to anybody? Because he was always he was always planning on doing it himself. So it was, it was not like he would ever see something and write a memo saying, this is what I want to do, because he was always planning on being the editor. So that, that was, that, you know, it, it would have been surprising if we had actually found like memos about the artistic intent of scenes. My biggest regret about Other Side of the Wind was that Gary wasn't around to see it, because, I mean, he basically devoted his entire life to the movie. It was the beginning of his career when he met Orson and really um, worked with Orson like all 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 the movies that he was doing, he was doing so he could keep working with Orson. You know, be they like the Al Adamson movies or the porn movies. You know, just to make a living, to be you know, so he could work for Orson for free for the most part. And then even after Orson died, he, he was the guy who really kept the torch burning and trying to get the movie finished and showing it to studios and showing it to investors and, and never really never could really get anybody interested. So I really give Netflix credit. I mean, I just was always against Netflix, but. Um, I thought they were ruining the film business, but I mean, they really stepped up where nobody else ever did and really got this movie done, you know, which is amazing. You said you're doing this for not a whole lot of money, and obviously this is taking a whole lot of time to put together. I mean, even though there was that tight deadline, did you have to step away from any gigs or put stuff aside? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and and basically, on this movie, I was working for a rate that I haven't worked at in over 20 years. Uh, It's, but, you know, it's like, I've never really picked my projects based on you know, money anyway. I, I don't work constantly, and I tr- actually turn down a lot of stuff, and I work, and I just try to work on movies that I think that I want to work on for whatever reason. I mean, if it's you know directed by Bill Lustig or you know with a script by Larry Cohen, I mean like Uncle Sam. I mean it wasn't a, a movie that turned out great, but uh, I, I, I'm you know a huge fan of both of those guys. And, you know, if Herschel Gordon Lewis had a movie, I would uh, worked on that. I tried to get on Rudy Ray Moore's movie, Sons of Dolomite, but I guess I was, uh, I don't know what happened. But I, I really tried hard to get on that for a number of years, and I still haven't seen the, the final movie. I don't really have the heart to watch it because I hear it didn't turn out very good. But um, I always tried to work with Russ Meyer. I offered my services to him on several occasions, but I was somebody who you know, never really cared that much about money. I, I mean, I was lucky to work on a few big movies. Yeah, that's put me in a situation now where I can turn stuff down and not have to be worried about paying the rent or whatever. I have low overhead. So, but yeah, I mean, uh, other side of the wind, I mean, frankly, they paid very little, but in reality, I probably would have done it for free. And if I was had done it with Gary, I mean, it would have been, been just working on it. So yeah, I would rather work on something cool and important than, you know, one of these million other movies that just kind of come and go. And, you know, when I'm not, if, you know, if I'm waiting for something else, I always have the, the grind out stuff, you know, to work on in, in, in the meantime. It's basically even a hobby, but, um, you know, something to work on between shows, you know, and work on movies that I really care about. Netflix, when they saw Other Side of the Wind, um, when we finally showed it to them, I was just dreading, you know, the studio notes. You know, we showed it to the executives, and it was on a Friday, and, you know, and uh, I just said to everybody, okay, hey, well, you know, come Monday, the, the honeymoon's going to be over. You know, we're going to be on the phone for two hours, and they're going to have a million notes, and we're going to have to do a bunch of things we don't want to do. And 
you know, our one producer, Philip uh, Rimza, he's a younger guy, and he kept saying, no, I don't think they're going to have any notes. And I go, I said, Philip, you're, you're naive, you know, if, if you really think a studio's not going to have any notes, it just shows that you're inexperienced. And I said, I'm not trying to be condescending, but I've gone through this a million times with a bunch of studios, and they always have, they're always confused by things, and they always try to force their opinion on, on the movie. So, of course, Monday morning, we had the phone call, and all it was was, Hey guys, we loved the movie. We thought it was weird and cool and, and didn't really understand some of it. And, but, uh, but really think that you guys have a great thing and just, um, you know, do whatever you need to do from here on in and just, uh, let's get the movie done. They literally had zero creative notes, which is, is a situation that, I mean, even Asheville's Evil Dead, you know, stars, I mean, they were 99% supportive, but they had a couple of notes. But, um, this, for somebody, for a studio to have zero notes about a movie creatively, was just uh, so incredible. I mean, it was probably the most amazing thing that happened in the course of the movie. So, I mean, they were they were just great. They were supportive, and and you know, they they financed the movie nobody ever ever wanted to finish, and they didn't interfere with the process at all, which you know is is like amazing for any filmmaker. So, I can really see why so many filmmakers are going to Netflix. I mean, if they keep that up, they're going to be the best company in the world because um, you know they respect the creative process. They don't try to uh, interfere with it and, and inflict their own, you know, bad ideas, which is great. Which is what studios should do. You hire the best filmmaker, and then you let them do their thing, and 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 understand why they're in a position where, where you're interested in them, as opposed to trying to like change everything that they've done and 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 like ruin their vision, which is what most studios usually end up trying to do. So I, I was so against Netflix when I started on the movie. <laughs> Uh, I just hate, hated the whole idea. I thought they were ruining the film business, uh, you know, the, with the whole day and date thing. And just, I, I'm so into like seeing movies in movie theaters and their, their business model is the, the exact opposite. But, um, but yeah, this one, I mean, they even, they even made a film negative and, and made 35 millimeter release prints so we could play the movie on film in theaters, which I think is, uh, pretty astounding considering that they're, you know, all about streaming. I wish I would have been able to see that in theaters. The one mistake they made is not letting Grindhouse releasing handle the theatrical booking of the movie. I, I keep saying, hey, let us handle it, man. We, we have movies playing in theaters every week. We'll get it in probably 50, 60 different theaters. It did play in uh, Ann Arbor. It played at the uh, state uh, on film. It was so weird because it just like popped up as like, oh, this is playing for these four days, and then it was gone. I know. I, re- I really wish they would have started sooner, but they really just kind of did it like the weekend prior to the, the streaming release. I don't know why they did it that way. I think they still wanted to make a point that it was like, you're streaming on Netflix, you know, but they were still, you know, they, they still did it, which I give them a lot of credit for. The documentary that went with it was, was really well made. me when I'm dead, the Morgan Neville that, yeah. That was impressive. I like the way that they used the editing in there to have Wells speaking to things and speaking. Yeah, to- yeah. I mean, I think it's a great con- companion for the movie because the movie's, I, actually, I, I think it's good to see that documentary first and then see the movie in a weird way because it just really, I don't think it gives away too much of the movie, but it really kind of gives you the context of like what it was and why it was. And, you know, and I think it makes, because I think just watching the movie cold on its own is a little tough for audiences. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it, it just it's so dense, you know, it's, uh, it kind of gets your brain ready for it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. And, and because it's such a different style or type of movie that you're maybe not, like expecting from Orson Welles even. So I think, yeah, I think the movie's kind of off-putting, you know. And I think it's the kind of movie that the more times you see it, the better it gets. You know, I always, I always tell that to people because, you know, you start watching it, it's so, like the beginning, I still feel like really rough. 
by design. I mean, it's just the way we're shot. Um, uh, and uh, but and so many characters being introduced and so much stuff happening, it's just it's kind of hard to follow. Um, but I think the more then when you see it again, it's like you know who everybody is, so it's like it makes it easier to sort of uh, react to it and follow it. So I think that's like like all great movies. I think it deserves to be watched more than once, and uh, hopefully people. The good thing about Netflix is, you know, once it's done, they can just watch it again, and it'll and hopefully it'll it'll always be there, you know. And but uh, hopefully we'll do a we'll do a, like a physical release as well, like a super deluxe, like Blu-ray edition, because there's a definitely a mountain of uh, extras that we can include with this release. Even the story that you're telling me tonight about the editing, was there anybody there documenting you doing this stuff? Well, there's a second documentary uh, on Netflix. It's called. Um, a Final Cut for Orson, 40 Years in the Making. And it's it's a, a documentary that Frank Marshall's group made about the finishing of the movie. So so, so Morgan Neville's documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, is about everything like involved in the making of the movie up till the point that Orson died. But there's a second documentary that's about all the work that we did starting last year until the movie got finished. God, I feel like an idiot. I didn't even know about that. Yeah, it's called it's called um, a final cut for us in forty years in the making. It's really hard to find because um, you have to go on the main page for other side of the wind and click on more trailers, which makes no sense. But apparently, one of the problems with Netflix is they only have like a one interface fits all for all the, their movies. So they don't really have a button for like featurettes or anything because I don't think they really do them. But it's 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 a really cool finishing of doc that's um, kind of goes through everything, all the stuff I've been talking about and all the all the problems and. And things that happened, and that, that basically we needed to deal with to make the movie finished movies. So it's, it's cool. But yeah, there was um, quite, quite a bit of stuff of uh, stuff shot with us. You know, working on the movie, they were, were always planning on doing this finishing up doc, and um, and then there's uh, just a ton of other material. Um, you know, deleted scenes. Um, the, the character that Peter Bogdanovich plays was originally played by Rich Little. So essentially, the entire movie with with him appearing in that part, um, all, every one of those scenes, uh, he basically shot out the entire movie, and and they reshot everything with Peter. So all those all that exists, um, and then just a lot of cool scenes that there really wasn't a place for in the movie. You know, things that wasn't shot. You know, where once we started trying to get the movie down to an acceptable length, we you know we just realized you know we didn't need or at this point we should be focusing more on. John Easton's character and his relationship with um, you know Peter's character Brooks Otter like and and not really deviating too much with the, the secondary characters you know they're just the kind of stuff you do when you're making a movie and trying to focus the narrative so you know we always knew we wanted the movie to be under two hours because Orson always wanted his movies to be under two hours which to me was like liberating because we didn't feel like we had to have everything in, in just because Orson shot it I always knew he had this attitude that he just wanted to be like really tough with, with his movies when he was editing them Often to a fault, you know. He, his famous line was, "He always would say in the editing room, he's the enemy of the movie, meaning that he was always like the, the guy who was like tough and really wanted, would throw anything away, regardless of how much time he spent as a director shooting it, if he thought it was like off the point or or like boring to the audience. You know, he really wanted to keep his movies concise. And I actually think that if he if he had had edited the movie, I think it probably would have even maybe been like ten or fifteen minutes shorter. But um, you know, of course we always aired on the side of keeping it a little longer, you know, because it's just <laughs> for historical reasons. Yeah, I mean, you can't be too too, too too tough with something that Orson Welles shot, you know. He would have. That doesn't mean that you know, we had to. 
you know, I, I think I would, if, if left, left to my own device, I think I would, would have made things, a few things a little shorter. But, you know, everybody had different opinions. I was, you know, working with Peter Bogdanovich and Frank Marshall and Philip, the other producer. Um, we just, all of us had different things that we liked and wanted to protect. And ultimately, it's like, yeah, you know, it's an Orson Welles movie. We should keep that in. If somebody likes it, we should, you know, keep it in, you know. Yeah, and those guys have made a couple movies. So made me, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, to be working with to be working with Orson Welles is, is incredible. In a movie that says John Huston, but then to be working with Peter Bogdanovich in the editing room, I mean, it just it was like uh, once in a lifetime experience. I mean, it is, and, and just like I'm such a fan of, you know, the actors in the movie, to, you know, Cameron Mitchell and Mercedes McCambridge and Edmund O'Brien, I mean, just all these great Dennis Hoppers in the movie, and just uh, Orson shot like a two-hour interview with him, you know. Which you know, we only used like you know a few seconds, but um, but he shot a full interview with two cameras where m- most of it is just Hopper talking about like you know working. He, he had just finished shooting the last movie, and so it was in the middle of like you know I had just finished shooting that. So he has all these great stories about that and working on it. And his earlier career as an actor and just all this stuff. Orson shot with him just you know to, because he was there and to warm him up, you know. And now the last movie is finally getting a proper release. I mean, this is such a crazy year for movies. A movie that people thought kind of single-handedly like destroyed Hollywood or whatever, however they exaggerate. But yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff in that movie. Well, Bob, thank you so much. This has been awesome talking with you. Yeah, thank you. Yes, yeah, it's, it's been a blast, and um, and uh, I'm glad we could kind of do a book into your earlier show about the uh, other side of the wind. That was, a, of course, part of my research when two two or three months when I was waiting to start. I uh, listened to your uh, two or three hour show on that, and it was like very informative. And, uh, yeah, and Josh Harp and his book. And, I mean, we had so many great resources in, on this movie. So, so but yours was definitely, Josh is great. And, and it was funny when, when I, the day I interviewed for the job, as I was heading out, Frank said, Hey, have you read Josh Harp's book? And I go, No, I didn't even really know. And he goes, Yeah, it's, it's uh, writer Josh Harp wrote this incredible book about the other side of the wind. I didn't even know about it. So he handed it to me. And, like I said, I was super depressed because I thought, thought I wasn't going to get the job anyway. I went home and I read it, and, and I <laughs> became even more intimidated. It's like, well, I don't think I'm going to get the movie, but after reading this, I don't know if I, this is something I want to even be involved in. Because reading that book, I mean, it just, and then, of course, every, everything I heard about the movie, including your podcast, but like every article, I mean, just made it seem like this like unredeemable disaster, you know. And here we were stepping into it, and um, so, yeah, I mean, it, there was actually a lot of... Um, Dark days of despair on this movie. Um, knowing knowing the history of it, knowing the importance of it, and knowing how it maybe it wouldn't turn out, you know. But um, I guess it did. So glad glad I lived to tell the tale.
Up next, we're going to hear from Mr. Pister from the other side of the wind himself, who is also a Wells scholar, Mr. Joseph McBride. I have to apologize for the sound quality of this interview. We were trying something new, recording via Skype rather than via phone. So hopefully everything works. Enjoy. So when we talked about the other side of the wind back in 2015, I think it was, you had pretty much said... I won't believe that this project is ever going to see the light of day until I'm sitting in a theater and see it unspool in front of an audience. I, I saw it in a theater in June uh, down at Netflix office in Hollywood, me and the projectionist, and that was the thrill to see it on the big screen. And then I saw it with an audience at the Telluride Festival in August uh, when it uh, premiered the, at the American premiere. And that was a big deal. Um, we had a huge crowd very excited, tremendous anticipation, of course, for this film that's been in the works for 48 years. And we had Frank Marshall and Peter Boganovich and I do a panel discussion after the film, and that was a big thrill. And then I saw it in New York with uh, at the New York Film Festival. That was a big crowd, uh, very appreciative. Martin Scorsese came out and talked with uh, producers and, and uh, had a discussion. So I've seen it with audiences in 35mm and digital First time I saw it in 35 was in New York, and it really is the optimum way to see it. Digital looks good, but as Bob Morosky, the editor, said to me, I prefer film, you know, 35 millimeter, and that's the, the photography, the quality of Gary Graver's cinematography really comes across so richly in, in that format. Were you involved at all with the restoration of it? You know, for many years, I was trying to get the film restored, working with Gary Graver. From the 70s onward, whenever I had a chance, I would talk to producers and say, you know, can we try to finish this film? And I asked Roger Corman at one point because he was releasing some art house films, foreign films, etc. He was well disposed toward it, but he said, uh, I would want all the legal and financial issues settled before I would think of releasing it because otherwise I'd be hit uh, by three lawsuits at noon the day it opened, you know. We made some progress in the 90s. For a long time, it was held up at Bouchery, the uh, Iranian investor, and Ida, uh, I mean, sorry, Oya Kodar, who is Wells' partner and collaborator, both owned parts of the film, and Wells had gotten angry because we needed more money. Bouchery would take away part of his percentage until Wells only owned 20% of the film, and, and uh, Bouchery was not a bad guy, but he was uh, beleaguered by uh, Wells kept needing more, needed more money at time, and so there was a lot of um, bitterness there, and so I said, let's just give each of them a million dollars. I just kind of made this up, and then we'll have a million for post-production. And we got them to agree, and that was a big deal that they, they each side agreed to have the same amount. So we cleared that hurdle, and uh, Showtime was interested in doing the film. Gary and I showed a work print to all kinds of people in Hollywood, uh, including Spielberg and Lucas and Clint Eastwood and Oliver Stone and various production companies, and nobody would I'll do anything with it until uh, Showtime. Matthew Duda was the executive, and he believed in it. But he couldn't clear the rights. He tried for years and finally retired. And so um, in 1999, Showtime said, let's do a deal, $3 million deal. And then Oya Kodar and Peter Boganovich fired me from the project, feeling, I guess, that they didn't need me anymore. I just walked away from it. I, I, I thought this was um, not, not just, but I didn't want to cause any more trouble for, for the film. And uh, then the deal 
quickly collapsed, of course. And uh, Wells' daughter, Beatrice, started causing trouble. And then uh, Oya began being difficult. And long story short, uh, Philippe Jan Remza came in. He was a young Polish foreign producer. And he separately was working with Frank Marshall. I mean, they were working separately on the project. And they joined forces. But Philippe spent nine years of his life negotiating with Oya on this thing. And I am really glad, in retrospect, that I was fired because I wouldn't have wanted to spend nine years arguing with her. He, it's almost miraculous that he concluded that deal. And then Frank has a lot of clout as a major Hollywood producer. So he was able to get Netflix involved. And Netflix, very commendably, you know, they're subject to great controversy in the industry now, but they, they're the only people to put up the money for this film after all these years, $6 million. They originally put up five, and then at one point Frank said, we need another million. They said, go ahead. And they, they really did not at all um, interfere or make suggestions. Uh, they finally saw a uh, semifinal version of the film. And I talked to Ted Sarandos, the head of content there, and uh, uh, Ian Brick was the executive in charge of the production. And they were, they were both really supportive of Wells. And they told me they went with it because they trusted in Wells and believed in him, which is what you know we hoped other people would do. Because a lot of people in Hollywood say that they love Wells, but they wouldn't help him, you know. But these guys would, and so I give them tremendous credit. And um, they told me they weren't totally sure going in if there was a complete film, because there was 96 hours of footage in the lab in Paris that had been impounded there for decades. And I had Gary check the condition of the material in the 90s. He said it was in great shape, and it still was when they finally got access to it. But nobody had ever seen all the footage, even Gary and Orson had never seen all the footage because it wasn't all printed at the time. And so it came to Hollywood, and um, there was a fascinating documentary on Netflix called The Final Cut for Orson, 40 Years in the Making, all about the post-production, which was a pretty astounding process, uh, very hard to do. All this footage, many, many shots, uh, the film, you know, is very, uh, you know, a lot of quick cuts and and then the sound had some problems. They lost some of the original production sound tapes, but they had duplicates of them, but they had to do a lot of work to uh, bring them back up to optimal quality. And they did a fantastic job with the sound. And Bob Morowski's editing was brilliant. Uh, he uh, worked with Wells had edited 41 minutes of the film. So he established a style and a template, and Bob followed it wonderfully in, in the film. And I, I really think they did a great job. Uh, I have a few reservations, but I was called in as a, um, a consultant with Jonathan Rosenbaum, the film critic. And he and I saw the film back in January 2018 down in L.A. And we asked for our opinions, talked to Philippe and uh, Bob Morawski. And then I wrote a long memo, like 26 pages, I think it was, uh, giving my thoughts in, in fine detail uh, some things that I thought could be improved. And they took some of the suggestions, not all of them, and Jonathan did a similar thing. So we had some input into it, and uh, I think it came out uh, wonderfully. Uh, and I was really surprised. I mean, I always believed in this film. There were a lot of people who said there wasn't a film there, or it's a mess, or it's, um, uh, it should be turned into fodder for a documentary about the making of the film. And I said, no, he shot you know, almost all the film. There were just a few shots that were still to be done with uh, they were done with CGI and a little stock footage but I said you know this is a major Wells film that he spent years shooting let's, let's get the film done as a film 
But when I finally saw it, I was very impressed because it was even better than I expected because, you know, there were a lot of things I hadn't seen before that filled in gaps in the story and uh, fleshed out the performances. The performances are extraordinary. It's such a rich cast. And we have to see all the nuances and the fine parts of the performances to understand how how good they are and, and, and all the themes that are going through the film. It's a very dense film, as people have pointed out. A lot of complex themes going through it and uh, often done very quickly or obliquely. And there are all these different threads going on. It, it really cannot be fully appreciated in a work print form. So I think the work print we showed was uh, off-putting to people, actually. And I suggested to Gary at one point that we cut it down. It was 95 minutes long. And it had the downside of looking sort of like a complete film because it had a beginning, middle, and an end, but it was missing so much footage, and it was in very battered shape. And I said, this is giving a bad impression of the film. Let's go and cut it down to Wells's 41 minutes plus about 20 more minutes of scenes and not present it as if it's a whole film, just a sampler, and he wouldn't do that. Uh, so I think it's a triumph what they did. There's something ironic about having approached Steven Spielberg for funding way back, uh, whatever that was, and then now he's railing against Netflix for uh, having won so many Oscars just this year. Yeah, I can't take that seriously at all because, you know, he failed to step up to play this with Wells, and uh, these films would not exist without Netflix, uh, also Roma and Ballad of Us with Scruggs and other films. The Irishman, Martin Scorsese, you know, look at this. You've got Martin Scorsese directing a gangster film with Robert De Niro and Al, Al Pacino, and he couldn't get any studio to fund him. That's the state of Hollywood right now. So Netflix puts up $100 million for it, and uh, they should be credited. And uh, it's, it's sort of like, you know, I think part of the problem is it's a bigger fin- uh, philosophical issue than just these films, but... Spielberg is, is unfortunately on the wrong side of history because it, it may sound good to say that theatrical experience should be preserved, but the reality is that a lot of the best work is being done on cable TV and uh, streaming uh, services now, and that's where a lot of people see films, uh, and it, it, sure, it's better to see certain films at least on the big screen, but in your home with a, a large screen TV and uh, without people talking and you know, disruptive uh, use of iPhones and all that. You can pay attention to the film, and uh, I don't see it as a major problem. I saw Buster Scruggs first on Netflix. I love that film. Theater, I wanted to see uh, how it played there, and I didn't think it was all that much difference. It was beautiful in both places, but actually I thought it almost better on television for some reason. But Other Side of the Wind, I think, is improved by being shown on the big screen. However, the reality is here are these major filmmakers, and Spike Lee is another one who just signed Netflix. And uh, if the studios won't support them, <clears throat> and Spielberg is part of that system, Netflix is stepping in uh, to the void there and making good personal offbeat films possible. And uh, that's that's what we should be hoping for. So going back to my first question, what was that experience like for you when you finally saw it unspool in front of an audience after all these years? Well, it was a kind of mind-blowing, surreal experience because we've been fantasizing about this for so long. And I did get to the point where I wasn't sure this would ever happen because it was so exasperating all these negotiations with Raya who seemed to be re- resistant to getting the film out. She, you know, she wound up getting $1.3 million for her share and we offered her a million in 99 and I went into the 
calculations, and it, it, she got about the same amount, you know, with, with inflation factored in. And she could have had a million all those years and done something with it, but you know, she I, we don't really know why she was making life difficult, but she finally capitulated. So it, you know, I walked out on the stage and I didn't realize I was supposed to help introduce the film. They told us as we were waiting in the wings, so I threw together a few comments. And, um, it was tremendously exciting to see it during the big screen in this huge theater in Telluride. Just to see the audience reaction, they were very primed and very excited. And you know, when the film first came out, as I predicted, the mainstream reviewers were kind of divided on it. There were certain criticisms uh, that were predictable. But a lot of the reviews, they didn't know what to make of the film. So I, I anticipating this, I, I wrote a long piece for Sight and Sound, which came out in early October. Uh, the film was debuting on Netflix in early November. So I wanted to get this piece out ahead of that so I could kind of influence people to understand what this film really was. And I felt Wells put me in the film partly. He wanted a film historian on the set, and he liked my reviewing, uh, well, my, my uh critical pieces on his films in my book. He had been burned so much by false reporting on his films that he wanted somebody who could just correct all the records. So I was, I'm still correcting the record when I read things that are just false about this film. I try to point them out. It gets a little tiresome after all these years, but I think I had the fact because the, uh, but also I think it's the kind of film that takes time for most people to uh, evaluate. I mean, I've, lived with it for so long and I know everything really well, but it, it certainly gains by repeat viewings and uh, just having some time to think about it because it's a very fresh as every Wells film has always been. It shakes you up and it shakes up the nature of cinema as Scarcese said in New York that uh, he's making us think in new ways about the cinematic image and how it can be used and um, you know, to expect people to write a review that night you know, crank it out and make sense of something new and challenging is, is expecting too much. And so the, the, when the reviews started coming in from film magazines and uh, bloggers uh, and, and, and some other magazines, uh, you know, in October, November, December, they were much more intelligent, I thought, than the original reviews. And so people started really grasping what the film was about, like the sexual themes. Uh, very few people seemed to understand the sexual themes at first, and they either expressed bafflement or they just said, well, there's some strange sexual stuff going on, and that's about it. But now they're actually writing about it. And so there have been some very intelligent reviews of the film. And, uh, but with every Wells film, and I started my Sight and Sound article by saying this, that he was like Stanley Kubrick in that they both made 12 films in their lifetimes that were released. And Kubrick had the advantage of being more commercial as well as artistic, but so he had the backing of a major studio, Warner Brothers, but Wells did not. But their films were, as I say, always different from what people expected. They didn't make the same film over and over again. Uh, and when you saw a John Ford film or a Hitchcock film or a Hawks film, as good and varied as those filmmakers were, you kind of knew what to expect as a film goer, but you didn't quite know what to expect from the Wells or Cooper film. You know, if you love Dr. Strangelove, you were somewhat disconcerted by 2001 at first, and it took a while. And that, that's very typical of both Wells and Kubrick. And so I figured uh, this will happen with Other Side of the Wind. In five or ten years, everybody will say it's a great film. And, you know, I really think it is a great film. But you can't expect that to happen in the first two or three months. You know, but we have a 
short, just sort of short attention span these days. Uh, but you know, there is uh, another life for films and books and repeat viewings, and it will. The film will come out from Criterion eventually. Probably uh, it'll take about a year, and hopefully they'll have a good set of extras with it too, which would be valuable. There is the documentary. They'll Love Me When I'm Dead by Morgan Neville, which I'm in, that's pretty good. And, and Morgan put in a lot of outtakes. He, he told me he thought that was one of the best things he could do and makes it very interesting. And then uh, A Final Cut for Orison. You can see those both on Netflix. They kind of hide A Final Cut for Orison. They didn't really want Frank Marshall to make that film, but you can see it, but a lot of people don't even know it exists. And then um, I suggested they take, there's 95 minutes of footage of Paul Mazursky Dennis Hopper and Henry Jaglum and Curtis Harrington talking. They were all important young directors at the time. And they're talking to Jake Hannaford's character. He's not in, in the shots, but and about him and about how Hollywood is changing. That stuff is historically very important and very entertaining. And in the film, it's only about two minutes, you know, and I said way back in the 90s, let's make a separate Wells film out of this. And they're they, they, I guess they're thinking of doing that, putting it on as an extra. And then there are other things like the uh, audio tape I made of the uh, first day of shooting, 31 minutes, uh, which I hope we can link to this podcast. That's a very rare document. I offered that to Criterion. And so, you know, hopefully there'll be a, a good set. But it, it is something, it is, I mean, there were DVDs put out for um, for the guilds and the academy that if I'm a member of uh, a guild, I'm a member of two guilds, the Writers Guild and the American Cinema Editors, and uh, I have a copy of the film, so it's good to have a physical copy. You know, you never know the streaming, like what happened with Filmstruck, where it suddenly vanished. But Netflix, I asked one of their executives how long Other Side of the Wind will be on, and the guy said, forever. Let's hope, and they're, they're doing well, but, you know, we've learned that nothing is forever, so it is good to have a physical copy of the film in your library. You can pull out whatever you want. What are some of the things that you find yourself correcting in articles and, and the mistakes that you see people making? Well, uh, the primary one is right in the ads. It says it's the final film of Orson Welles, and it's not. And that, I think, is kind of a damaging publicity claim because it, every time people say that, it's, it's a nail in the coffin of films like Don Quixote and Deep and uh, Merchant of Venice and other Welles films that are magic show, etc., dreamers that were filmed and not released or not completed, and you can see parts of them in various forms, and some are not not completed, but they are Wells films, and he kept shooting films for nine years after he did his last shooting on the other side of the wind in 1976. He lived in 1985, and he was always making films. So the, really his last film, I believe, was Magic Show, which was a collection of sort of skits, very visually entertaining, and he was just having fun doing magic and uh, interesting settings and things and uh, it's it, that there's enough of that film it could be put together and i'm not sure why it isn't the munich film archive has all the wells unfinished material except for other side of the wind don quixote don quixote is scattered in i think four archives and i've seen minutes of well 40 minutes of really beautiful footage from the cinematheque francaise so you can see how good it looks there was an awful version put out in the early 90s by jesus franco there was a real bastardization done with poor footage, and it really um, did disservice to the film. But that's a film that should be finished. Uh, Rosenbaum at one point told me he thought that's the best of the 
uh, unreleased Wells films even better than others. I would win. There was his opinion. He's probably seen more of it than anybody else because he made it his business to go to these archives. But I am not going to be involved in that one. I don't want to be involved in another one of these projects because it's uh, it can take over your whole life. But somebody should do it. That's a myth. And um, uh, well, you know, one thing that was bothersome but predictable is when Other Side of the Wind came out. Since we're now in the Me Too era, which we would back in the 70s, even though the film was made when the women's movement was, you know, in its early formative period, a lot of controversy and a lot of awareness of that, and Wells was aware of that, uh, it's somewhat of a different world now. And so you have this guy, Jake Hannaford, who's John Houston's character, who's a, a kind of a poster boy for the Me Too movement, I would say. He, he represents all, all that's bad about the male gender's behavior. Uh, he's a chauvinist, and he's he's cruel to women, and he's really doesn't like women much, and he's a latent homosexual, and uh, a Don Juan figure, who, as we know from psychologists, that tends to go with latent homosexuality, and he's he's vicious toward Oya Kodar's character, and et cetera, et cetera, and um, he's a racist to some extent, and so there there was this confusion among critics thinking that this was Wells's point of view somehow, and that couldn't be more wrong because Wells is attacking that point of view. He's, he's, he, the film is an anti-macho film. He said that clearly in, in my presence, and we, we talked about it before he started shooting. He said he made it to attack machoism, as he called it, or as we call it, machismo. And he was making fun of, or, uh, you know, attacking in a very strong way that whole cult of Hemingway-esque uh, bluster and male chauvinism. And, and so for the film to be criticized for depicting that is so wrong and it's so unfair, but people are very confused and kind of stupid these days on these issues. They get all mixed up. And it's been described as not PC. I just think this whole PC concept is very dangerous, really. that It's a form of conformism that, you know, everybody has to behave a certain way, but in, in drama... They miss the point completely because characters are not supposed to be role models, but a lot of people seem to think that's what a character should be in a film as a role model for certain kinds of behavior, and that's that's not what drama is about. Drama is about conflict, and a lot of the most interesting characters are anti-heroes or uh, villains. Humphrey uh, Bogart made a whole career out of playing those kind of characters, and Jake Hannaford is in that mold. But you know, today in Hollywood, one reason films are so bad is that when they get a project, they start taking, trying to sand away all the rough spots from the characters in the story and say, well, let's not do this because it might offend some group somewhere and in this and this and this. And then they wind up with some kind of bland, neuter characterizations, and that's, that's anti-drama. And uh, I think that a lot of this PC crusade and, and related things are kind of an, an attack on the whole nature of art. So I, I think that was a, a damaging thing, but I was surprised at the extent to which that misconception took hold. So I tried to deal with that in my article by writing about what Wells is really saying in the film and uh, trying to straighten that out. And I think I had some effect, and then maybe other people, you know, some some good reviewers understood it in a, in a complex way. Have you had to speak about authorship and who actually owned doing what for a film that took so long to shoot and then so long to see the light of day? You know, there hasn't been enough attention paid to Gary Graber, the cinematographer, without whom the film would not have existed because he helped Morrison realize he could make the film and then he sacrificed a lot and used his ingenuity and skills and his crew and, you know, 
he's very loyal. He was with the film all through the years. And then after Wells died, he kept there. He said, I'm still working for us. And literally, he got Bob Morosky, the editor, who, who deserves tremendous credit, and the producers, etc. But Boya Kodar shares writing credit with Wells, which I think is questionable. But that was part of the deal. And uh, she did have some input into the concept of the film. They were a couple from 62 until his death. He was married to Paula Mori all that time, so he kind of went back and forth between them. But Oya had a had a strong creative effect on his later work. You see that in Effort and other films. Uh, she, Among other things, she opened him up to sexual themes in a more overt way than he had ever done. His work was somewhat puritanical before that, as even he admitted. And uh, so his later films explore all kinds of nature, sexuality, including homosexuality. Although she once denied to me in 2005 that I just mentioned to Hannaford as a blatant homosexual, and she vehemently disagreed, even though it's obvious in the film. So I'm not sure what she thinks exactly, but she, um, you know, Wells may have had more to do with that theme than Oya, but she obviously had an input into the story, and, and you know, she was with him all the, all the way through. So we don't really know all the ins and outs of her influence, but there is no, uh, I've not seen, and other people, nobody else has ever claimed to have seen any actual writing that she did on the film. You can have influences as a writer just by talking. You know, it doesn't have to be in, in written form. That's another question. But what bothered me was Jonathan Rosenbaum, who's a big proponent of Oya and a friend of hers, uh, was saying that she was a co-author of the film to some extent. And, you know, it raises questions of authorship. It's a big issue. Who's the author of the film? Um, and, I, I, you know, I believe in multiple authorship, and I think writers are as important as directors. But he started claiming that she actually directed some of the scenes in the film, uh, the film within the film. That was damaging in the sense that it was, just, it was false. Like the sex scene in the car, I think, is the best scene in the film, although I believe it was even better in Wells's seven-minute cut. They cut it to four and a half minutes, and I wish they had not, because it's better in his full cut. I hope they maybe put his cut on the, on the Blu-ray, but Boya didn't direct that, so I was moved to write an article about this scene in particular, and other questions like who directed the film within the film, and I got Bob Random, who's the guy that she's having sex with in the car, to comment, and he said that he was never aware of Oya directing it. Obviously, she was heavily involved since so she was the centerpiece of the scene. But he said Orson was the guy directing it. And I interviewed crew people and I interviewed Gary Graver. And, you know, they talk about how Wells staged the scene. It was very elaborate, very um, ingenious over a three-year period. And she certainly didn't direct it. And then Jonathan, when he was challenged on this, said, well, okay, she may not have directed it in the sense that we mean direction, <laughs> which I think kind of like Clinton saying it depends on what the meaning of is is or whatever. That's kind of an admission that, okay, she didn't really direct it. I'm, I'm certainly, as I said, willing to concede that she had a lot of input into the scene, but so do actors in a lot of films. Uh, that's a good director involves the actors and how do we do this and how do we do that and would you do this and where do you think you should do this and, and who knows what she told them, you know, before and after and at night or whatever. But she didn't direct it. I mean, there is a, such a thing as a director, and Wells directed those scenes. So I saw the specter of Pauline Kael rising again, who was trying to take away Wells' writing credit on Citizen Kane. She never bothered to correct 
her grossly inaccurate article about that. And Robert Carringer, who's a Wells scholar, actually read all seven versions of the Cain script and concluded that the screen credit is fair. Herman Mankiewicz first, Orson Welles second. They both had major contributions to the script. And yet you still read in articles that Wells didn't write any of Cain and he stole the credit from Mankiewicz and blah, 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 blah. So these, these rumors are very damaging and they persist for a long time. I mean, one, one rumor that is central to the Wells myth that you still see it printed as fact is that he was fired by RKO in 1942 for going wildly over budget on the documentary It's All True in South America and was drinking and screwing around and all this kind of stuff. And I found the actual records, you know, I'm a historian, I believe in looking at documents and not just taking you know, people's word for it. And uh, he was $447,000 under budget when he was fired for allegedly being over budget. I found transcripts of telephone conversations between RKO executives in which they actually say we're, we're not telling the, him the truth about the budget. The budget was really a million two, and they didn't want him to know that. And so they fired him and uh, took Ambersons away from him, Magnificent Ambersons. So I go into this in a video I did for Criterion on their recent Magnificent Ambersons uh, Blu-ray edition. I do a half-hour interview about the circumstances of those two films and what led to Wells' firing. And, and that really ruined his career as a Hollywood director. He got to direct a, a couple of films, after, three films after that in Hollywood, but he was under constraint. And he left and went to Europe for a long time. He was really blacklisted, too, and became an independent filmmaker again. My book, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, A Portrait of an Independent Career, the thesis I borrowed from my friend Douglas Gomery, fellow University of Wisconsin film guy back in our heyday in the 60s, and he theorized that Wells was always an independent filmmaker who, for a brief time, had the resources of a major studio and made two features for them, and then was forced by circumstances to go back to being an independent filmmaker. And Truffaut put it differently. He said Wells, Wells resumed his, his career as an avant-garde filmmaker. That's another way of saying it. And so in the uh, European period, he was very independent. And then he comes back to Hollywood briefly to make Touch of Evil uh, as a studio contract director. But then they took that film away from him. He was deeply traumatized by that, never wanted to work with the studios again. So from 58 onward, he was an independent director, again, working out of his home. And he was making literally home movies. That's his nature. He was not somebody who worked well within systems. He was a maverick. He was a troublemaker, etc. And uh, he was a true artist. And probably Jean Renoir said it best. He said Wells was an aristocrat working in a popular medium. And that was his problem. The two just don't jive. So that's uh, a rumor that is damaging about you know, he was irresponsible, etc. And I found him to be a very efficient director. Uh, Charlton Heston said he was the most efficient director he ever worked with, which is a high compliment given Heston's long career. Wells would shoot for 18 hours a day, and uh, the crew was young and they could handle it. I would get pretty worn out, and the actors, other actors would get worn out, but uh, the crew would get pretty stressed out. But Wells had tremendous energy and very concentrated, and he could not only shoot fast, but he could he could change his plans on, on a moment's notice if something wasn't working. He'd say, okay, let's, let's, let's do this instead. Or if, if there was some actor who didn't show up or something, he would change the scene around. And he was extremely um, 
uh, adaptable and uh, uh, clever and the opposite of a kind of director who uh, doesn't know what he's doing or is, is too stubborn to change anything if something doesn't go right. You know, he wasn't that kind of director at all. And he didn't waste money. He made Other Side of the Wind very uh, modestly uh, by most Hollywood standards. It, it cost about $2 million total in 1970s money, which was a you know, low-budget low, low kind of film at the time. You mentioned that longer scene of the sex scene in the car. Were there other things that you are kind of hoping that will be on the Criterion DVD Blu-ray? Well, there's a lot. There's so much footage that wasn't used, um, although a lot of it is multiple takes, you know, different things. I mean, they could put scenes on from the first day of shoot, for example, the scene that Peter and I did that goes for uh, a couple minutes, for example. And there are a lot of little things like that that you could put on. And uh, some of that is touched on in the... Uh, documentary they'll love me when i'm dead but very briefly uh just a shot here and a shot there so i'm not sure you'd have to kind of look at all the material and bob morowski knows it better than anyone else they had quite a job cataloging the material because wells didn't use the typical um, slates or uh numbers or uh things like that so they had to do a lot of kind of figuring out of what was what he kind of did that on purpose because he didn't want editors and studios to um kind of know what he was doing, so he'd mislabel scenes, etc. Uh, but they, they spent months categorizing this and then cleaning, cleaning it up took a lot of work. It was in good shape, but they had to uh, physically kind of rehabilitate the print. And then the uh, negative cutter, Mo Henry, who's a legend in her field, did a great job of uh, cutting all the material. And they, they show in the final cut for us in documentary that they had to use very elaborate, modern uh, computer techniques to match the negative with uh, scenes that they wanted to use in the film. And they, they say in the documentary, and I guess it's true, that 10 years before it would have been very hard to finish this film with the, the old-fashioned techniques. And when Wells died in 85, electronic editing was uh, really just coming in. And uh, he would have loved electronic editing. And when I first started, I worked on the AFI shows, the Life Achievement Award shows in the early 80s, and we edited those electronically, and that's television. But I remember saying to George Stevens Jr., our producer, this is a great way to edit. Uh, we don't do this in motion pictures. And he said, well, it's just too expensive. And because you have to rent the, the studio uh, hundreds of dollars a day or whatever it was. And, uh, it might have been beyond Wells' means at the time. And working on an old-fashioned Steenbecker movie, Ola, was very laborious and trying to keep... He had all this film in his head, you know. He didn't... I mean, I was there when he told the, the uh, script supervisor never to talk to him again. She had two script supervisors, and she was trying to correct something, and he said, I never want to hear from you again. So there was not an annotated script as there is on a regular film, and it's all in his head, and he could keep it in his head, but it would be a tremendous job even for him. And then when I came along in the late 90s trying, you know, with Gary trying to get this thing done, our plan was to have Peter Bogdanovich finish it because he's such a good filmmaker, and I would be a producer uh, and, and kind of supervise the thing. And Peter wound up working with uh, Bob Morowski and um, Philip Jan Rimza and Frank Marshall, kind of a troika to finish the film. But uh, Bob Morowski did a lot of the nitty-gritty, hardcore actual work of editing. And then they had this elaborate sound team. And they, they did some sound dubbing, for example. Uh, some of the production sound had the usual problems of noise and wind and things and what you normally do on a film is you call in the actors and have them loop the lines, but in this case, most of the actors were dead. I came in and I redid 17 lines. I was surprised 
to be asked to do that. And I said to the sound guy, when I was in the office looking at the film, and they said, would you come over here and loop some lines? I said, oh, okay. I was kind of surprised, but uh, I said, don't I sound different? It's been a long time. And he said, well, you sound kind of similar, you know. And they said, if there's any problem, we could electronically fiddle with your voice. And the only thing I did was I raised my voice a little in pitch to, to make it sound younger. And uh, then we did some further dubbing up here in Berkeley uh, at a studio with Bob Morowski on the, on, on the line from L.A. And he was directing me. And, you know, I did some of the takes numerous times to get a good line rating. And we didn't change the dialogue. And I tried to channel Wells's directions and inflections. I have a good memory, and I remember how we got, did all these things. But I was able to give better line ratings, which was nice, because I was not an actor. And especially the first day, I was kind of awkward, I felt. So uh, I, I think it helped my performance. We actually had lived a couple lines. Bob would say, could you say blah, 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 just a, just a, a couple words and things for transitions. And at one point, there was a scene where he wanted me to change the inflection and have my voice go up in a certain word and I didn't understand why and he said trust me this will work because of the editing the rhythm of the editing and it did work so I did it his way but it took gosh I don't know how many like 17 takes or something for me to get that right because I found it really hard to do but we did it so yeah there was all kinds of post-production work uh, and so you could go into the footage and the first thing I would do if I were involved is say to Bob you know what do you what scenes do you think we should put in as extras you know because you see some DVDs or Blu-rays, and they have like 15 or 20 scenes like um, JFK or Nixon or some of those films, scenes that didn't make it into the film, and it's fascinating to see the scenes as, as kind of alternate versions or um, the director's creative process uh, at work. Uh, I don't think they lost any scenes that I regret losing. You know, uh, sometimes films, when they get finished, you really miss a certain scene. But the only thing I, I, I regret is they shortened the car sex scene, and it's seven minutes long originally. And what they did was they trimmed the opening part, which is more the foreplay. It's Oya Kodar having with a guy in a car, and he's kind of just sitting there, and she's humping him in a rainstorm with this other man driving. It's very bizarre and interesting and tremendously erotic to kind of get to you know, cut to the chase, they cut out a lot of uh, the foreplay we're shiddling with them. And uh, I thought, you know, as we all know, foreplay can be more erotic than the actual act. And uh, I mean, they didn't show hardcore sex anyway, but uh, the, so you lose that. And then there's a buildup in her performance that it, she's getting more and more close to orgasm. And the editing is brilliant. Uh, and the photography is, is splendid all different colors and flashing lights and things, and, and uh, very fast cutting, the cutting accelerates, and it becomes, to me, a cinematic orgasm, uh, a really superb scene. And But the way it's cut, and they lost some of the color changes, I think because of the transition between film and digital, some of Gary Graver's, the colors on her face change, green, blue, etc. It's very effective, and it's not quite as good in, in the final version, and... Uh, Somehow it ends before she reaches orgasm, at least that's the implication. And then she gets thrown out of the car by the uh, driver is angry and jealous. But she, it becomes more of a scene of a woman's sexual frustration than a scene of sexual release and then this retaliation by this other guy. So I think that really hurt that scene. I think that's, that was or is the best scene in the film. 
So I was disappointed, but, you know, you can't have everything. But it would be nice to have the whole Wells version on Blu-ray, and people can debate. You know, there are differences of opinion on this, and I guess Bob Morowski and the producers felt it played better at four and a half minutes, and people could make up their own minds, which is part of the pleasure of Blu-rays as a scholarly medium uh, or DVDs that you can have different opinions about things as long as you don't, uh, you know, I don't believe in these fan remakes or recuts of films and all that, but it's it's good as scholars to have all the footage. I even suggested a radical to put all 96 hours up on uh, into a set, uh, unedited, just the way it exists, and sell it to aficionados who wouldn't sell very many copies. But there's a, a film I'm in, uh, uh, on the JFK assassination. Well, Randy Benson made a film, a documentary on the JFK assassination, and he interviewed some of the original critics on the case at, at great length, and he put out a set of for $100 of uh, unedited interviews with people like Mark Lane and other uh, early critics, and it's very valuable stuff because most of them are gone, and it's, it's more interesting because when you edit a documentary, you have to use just little bits and pieces, so uh, I think that's kind of a trend in the future we'll see more of for scholars. And, and I, I, they probably won't do what I suggested on this, but it would be nice. But I also said to them, you know, it's it's as important to preserve this stuff as it is to get the film out. There's all this focus on getting the film out, which is a Herculean task. But I was trying to focus them on saying the 96 hours should be in an archive for future scholars and shouldn't kind of get lost as these things sometimes tend to do. And, and wouldn't we love to have all the outs with Kane and certainly some Ambersons? A lot of people regret how they threw away the, the Wells version and uh, destroyed the negative and all the missing scenes, etc. And if they were in archives now, you could reconstruct the film or you could uh, study it in different ways. And uh, I think they were so distracted they hadn't totally focused on it, but on my own, I went to the UCLA archive and I said, why don't you guys try to get this? And they said, well, frankly, we have a policy against uh, having outtakes and you know unedited footage because we just don't have the space. And I said, well, it's an Orson Welles film. Maybe you could make an exception. And they could. And apparently the Academy Film Archives is considering this, but I, I'm not sure how that is left. And I, I really hope it happens. So what's your future with Other Side of the Wind? Are you done with this project now after 50 years? No, I, I guess I'll never be done with it. One thing you learn when you write books, I didn't expect this when I started writing my Wells book in 1967, that you're never done with the book once you write it. You always have to uh, keep up with the research of other people and the discoveries that people make. And in Wells' career, new films keep being discovered and footage, I mean, uh, documents and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, his life, his career is still thriving in a sense. I'm going to do a new version of my book, Orson Welles, which I updated in 1996, and I added 30,000 words, and I have two long pieces on the other side of the wind. But I want to do my definitive version, and my sight and sound piece will be part of that. But I want to expand on it and put that in uh, in the book. And uh, when I get the time, I'm writing a critical study of Billy Wilder now, and when I get the time, I'll finish that. You know, you're never done with any book in, in that sense. I mean, you put out new editions, you have to supervise translations, and sometimes you update things. My Steven Spielberg biography I've updated twice already, and uh, he's coming up to age 75, so I'll probably do another edition 
you know, I have to keep up on all the things that he's doing, which is hard because he's so active. It's important to to do that and not, you know, my the first book ended with um, Schindler's List and uh, Jurassic Park, and then I got it up to the point of he had done uh, Tintin, but he hadn't done Lincoln yet, so it was pre-production on Lincoln. So I've got all that period from Lincoln on to, to write about it. And other books as well. And so uh, I'm sure I'll be writing about Wells. I, I joke, but it's it's true that when I'm 90, I'll do a book called Orson Wells, The Last Word. You know, I've already done three books on him, but it becomes a lifetime thing. And then, you know, you get calls all the time to do, um, you know, podcasts and interviews. Uh, and uh, I just did uh, yesterday, uh, I did a book on Ernst Lubitsch last year. How did Lubitsch do it? And I, I did a presentation at a San Francisco Public Library. And, I just did a radio interview with the BBC on Frank Capra. I did a biography of Capra. And, uh, you know, these things keep happening. And uh, that's part of the job, I think, too, as a historian or an expert. And you, and you try to help people, you know, educate people on the films and help uh, further scholarship. Because I really hope that when you write a book, you hope that it will lead to more books and build a foundation because we stand on the shoulders of other scholars, as people have said. And then in terms of the film, you know, I'm doing audio commentaries on various films. I did Irma Deduce last year, and I did video interviews on Ambersons and also on several of Frank Capra's World War II documentaries. And I love doing those. That's a form of scholarship. And I occasionally do one on some director I haven't done a book on, but you often get asked to do ones on, on people you've written about before. And I think that's part of the ongoing research. And so other side of the wind, as I say, if Criterion wants me to be involved somewhere in the in the um, their edition, I'll be happy to help them. I just don't want to produce any more, try to produce any more Wells films. That's it's like a nightmarish occupation. I feel the other side of the wind was kind of like a relay race. You see, we're handing off the baton to another runner, and that person does the same. And I think that's that was my role. Not only as an actor, and I helped write my part with Wells, but you know, I kept trying to keep the film alive. And there were periods where nothing was happening, and it's easy to forget these things and let things slide. But Gary Graver never did, and so uh, I stepped in and I said to Gary, "You know, we really should pull our talents and try to get this thing done." And we tried and tried and tried, and I think we pushed the ball forward to some extent. And, you know, when I suggested we go to a cable network, that was an innovative idea because back then cable was considered far below film in terms of prestige, theatrical film. And you look at now with the Netflix controversy, it's still kind of an issue that streaming, but uh, streaming and cable um, have, uh, you know, I think are more serious media now than theatrical films, which are mostly... Uh, spectacle films for uh, adolescent males. Uh, Hollywood does not make serious films on social issue subjects very often, or films with major directors. They're making these cartoon movies and, um, and uh, you know all kinds of silly movies. But you know, when I said let's go to Showtime because I had a connection there, and Gary did too. I thought, hey, you know, if Hollywood doesn't want the film theatrically, they, they've never liked Orson Welles very much. They booed his name every time Citizen Kane was won at the Oscars in 1942, including when he won for a screenplay with Nicklitz. Um, they don't like this guy, so why are we beating our head against the wall trying to get a theatrical release? It's not going to happen. Let's go to cable. And so we found there was interest, and uh, I think that kind of helped the mindset shift to 
oh, okay, here's this thing called Netflix has come along, which is this terrific model for how to make a lot of money off, uh, you know, $13 a month from hundreds of millions of people around the world. So it has, uh, what is it, 139 countries show Netflix films? And I think Wells would be totally thrilled by having his film on that service because it's the biggest audience he's ever had. And he always had this problem that he made these films that barely got released, like Chimes of Midnight, Touch of Evil was dumped onto the market, and, uh, you know, they were playing a few theaters here and there and then disappearing, and you know, somebody would have to, re you know, revive them in an archive. And he never got proper releases for his films, so finally he has a chance for everybody in the world to see this film. He wants to pay a little money for a service, and, and it was shown in some theaters, and some people thought, oh, it's too bad it's not shown in more theaters, but hey, you know, they had the chance to do it. Hollywood didn't want to do it. It's not in the cars. It's a different business now. So I applaud Netflix for doing that, and I think we should be grateful. I, I told that to the Netflix executives. I said, you're the visionary kind of executives that Wells always needed and almost never had. The only one he had was George Schaefer at RKO, his original patron. And I said, you guys are the George Schaefers of, 19, of 2018. And um, so now Wells has a chance for everybody to see it, and not everybody's going to like this film. That's fine, but at least they have a chance to watch it and make up their own minds. Professor McBride, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mike. This is always, uh, it's always great talking to you, and uh, thank you for the chance to explore these issues at length. I really enjoyed it. Last but not least, we're going to hear from Josh Karp, who wrote the definitive book about The Other Side of the Wind. And in 2018, he had one heck of a year. He was the writer of A Futile and Stupid Gesture, and also the producer of The Love Me When I'm Dead. I did it, yeah. I, I lucked out big time. I had a very fortunate year. Were the winds just blowing right, or what was going on? You know, you do stuff, and you're kind of like, you don't know what's ever going to happen, what's ever going to like come through. And that, uh, you know, the um, film version of my first book was in development for like, it had been optioned kind of continuously for, oh, I would, since it was released. So for like, you know, seven or eight years before it, anything really started to happen. So all kinds of different people had had rights to it and stuff. But then like this thing just sat in kind of like development hell for like, there was a good script and all this. And then one day they went and met with Netflix and they called me and they were like, yep, we went in. And they said, get a star and it's done, you know? So that was in like, you know, 2000, late 2015. And so all of a sudden, you know, it's like, you know, they're, you know, we're having these ridiculous conversations, you know, which they're asking me if I'm okay with various people starring Exum Red Fox and let him star. I don't care. Just make a movie. You know, like, you know, that all just happened really fast. And then around the same time, you know, it was like right after, right around, um, or after the Orson Welles book came out and then Morgan Neville contacted me. 
you know, wanted to do a documentary. And those two things hit in the same year, you know, and I got to work with Morgan on the documentary, which was, which was great. Um, that was just fa- a fantastic experience. And I really, you know, he's, he was great to work with. And I was, you know, just really lucky to have such a good filmmaker of all people to be, you know, interested in the project. So yeah, it was great. I mean, it was, so it, I just all happened at the same time. I mean, in fact, you know, my wife and I were kind of laughing about, I was, I was like, God, like kind of downhill from here. <laughs> At this point, you know, it's like, you know, they're, you know, I mean, not, hopefully not, but it's, you know, I was like, God, you know, I'd really, it was, it was a very exciting year. And all of a sudden, you know, you're like, okay, back to work. (laughs) What do I do to make, you know, that kind of stuff happen again, which is, you know, always so easy. So, but it was really fun. I mean, it was really cool. I got to do all kinds of cool stuff and got to work on a movie, which was just really fun. So yeah, it was a good year. So I think we talked last in 2015, I want to say. How soon after that was Other Side of the Wind a go? What ha- it was like a weird confluence of things happened. And I think, weirdly enough, a lot of it was the Vanity Fair excerpt from my book had some impact that I didn't really know about until later. Because um, what happened was Morgan um, Neville had actually read that article. And then at the same time, you know, he and he had to deal with Netflix. And then one of the executives of Netflix had read the article and between, and they kind of, you know, I don't think that's the only reason they got involved, but I think it made them aware of the project that was in like spring 2015. And then as we were discussing the documentary, it kind of hinged on getting footage from the actual film, which we couldn't get unless they were making the film. So all of a sudden I was like, I was like, this is the most like, you know, weird meta Orson experience ever, you know, like now I'm waiting on the film to be you know, <laughs> released and all the legal problems to be hashed out. I was like, this is really a lot of karma coming back to slap me in the face. But so I think sometime maybe in like two, God, you know, I, I'd have to look back, but I mean, I think it was within, you know, six months or a year that they got that deal done. I know there were a lot of like, as you would imagine, there were all kinds of like last minute, wait, you know, this didn't get signed. Wait, this person isn't giving the rights to this. And, you know, and it literally there was a discussion, I believe, of rights to like Chinese CD, CDs in China. Or not CDs, DVDs, I'm sorry, DVDs in China. And I was like, that's going to be a huge moneymaker. What are you, <laughs> you know, why is that holding this up? You know, but it was, but it, was it was, I mean, you know, it was, as, as you might imagine, there were all kinds of crazy negotiation points after the fact that we're like, you know, holding up the deal and people were kind of, I think, tearing their hair out a little bit, but the Netflix people were just awesome. I mean, they were both with the uh, movie itself and with the documentary. I mean, they just did whatever, whatever they needed to do. And, you know, we're just really, I think, you know, supportive and, uh, and took a great, you know, I mean, really took for, you know, in the case of the film, you know, really did something to preserve, you know, cinematic history, which, for all the complaining people do about Netflix, none of them stepped in to do that. I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but they've they've been they were great to work with on everything I was involved with with them. That must have been so weird to have gone from writing about the story to now being a part of the story yourself. That was really odd. I remember when I was working on the book, having this like, which I never had had on anything ever before, where I was like, "Oh my god, I'm never going to finish." it's going to be just like the movie. This way in which it was like just such a, this whole thing is completely consuming my life. You know, like I, I, I was like, this is, you know, I'm going to wind up just, you know, my little minor version of, of what happened, 
you know, dwells in that situation. I was just like, it's like a curse. And so thankfully that did not, I didn't get included in the story that way, <laughs> but, but, but whatever little, whatever little influence, you know, I had, you know, the Vanity Fair article had, you know, that was great timing. And uh, yeah. And then just getting to work on, you know, getting to work on the film and kind of go back and revisit it and look at it from a totally different storytelling perspective was really, that was, a, that was a great experience. Cause that was, you know, it was just fun to be able to, you know, see how to, um, you know, turn that into, you know, a new documentary, which is a very different thing. And, you know, and so, and so it was fun to tell the story a different way and, and see how Morgan was, was, you know, shaped it into a, a film. Well, when you wrote the book, you were probably one of the few people that had seen as much footage as anybody had seen because nobody had seen all the footage. And I'm very curious, what was it like for you to actually see the whole thing as it was coming together because, you know, here you were writing about this mythical beast that you couldn't really see all the parts of. It was kind of like those blind people with the elephant. When I finally saw the movie, there was so much that I had not seen. You know, I mean, I had, the story was the story. I mean, I got that, you know, I mean, it was that. And, and I saw, you know, the kind of the, the outline of the story and I saw a lot, you know, most of the important scenes, but actually seeing it, all put together and seeing things that I had no idea existed. Like, um, I don't know if, if you've seen that there's the, the scene where they go into the nightclub and there's the weird bathroom scene. That's like this weird, surreal hippie thing. And like, and I had no idea. And I think they had no idea when they started digging through the film, you know, all of a sudden they were like, Oh my God, what's this? And they were finding stuff. And, and one thing that, that really made that film work was Bob Murawski, who was the um, editor who put all that together. That was a lot to make sense of. And you're up against, you know, a director who's, you know, not just Orson Welles, but he's also a guy who, you know, editing was really his biggest, most important, you know, piece of the process. And, you know, and he didn't really have editors. He just had assistants, no matter who they were to be in the situation Bob was in and get called in and they say, okay, you know, you're going to have to make this into a coherent movie and kind of match Orson Welles's what you, what you think he might have been trying to do, and also um, you know make it a movie that people are going to be able to to relate to in any kind of modern way. He did an incredible job. I mean, I you know I was blown away by what he was able to do. Um, and every time I've, I mean I haven't I haven't watched it like a hundred times, you know, but I've watched a couple, you know I saw it at several festivals and I've seen it a couple times. Really, I mean, that's the thing that just sticks out to me. It's just what a gargantuan task that was for him and how intimidating that must have been and how he completely nailed it as much as it could be nailed. So tell me about how the documentary comes together. Like, tell me how you guys decided to approach this. I think Morgan really, you know, is really a, you know, he's somebody who really understands the film side of things in ways, you know, I, I had never Imagine he's just a really clever, really creative guy. And I think he really, I knew the story. I knew the people. Yeah. I knew some of the pitfalls going into it. You know, like I, I remember at one point looking at, you know, a cut of it and I was like, yeah, I, I just remember. And this was early on. And I was like, yeah, you've got to be able to one thing people, it's so easy to get lost that you have to be so explicit at like every X minutes into the film you have to be like here's where we are here's here's what's happening here's what year it is as it just becomes this big pit you fall into so i mean that you know i mean i i think that was something that i 
I knew going in and I was able to contribute on that level and I was able to, you know, get a lot of the interviews and get people to tell good stories and stuff. As far as the way Morgan put it together, you know, you use all this found footage, both, you know, used footage from the film and used footage um, of Wells from just all kinds of different things and really cut it together, um, you know, in like this kind of Wellsian and, and, and really, I mean, I say, I think totally, you know, ballsy, I guess is the right word way. You know, he kind of was like, okay, I'll do, I'll do Wells on Wells, you know, like, and he, you know, the million different, zillion different cuts and things go back and forth and zip here and zip there. And he really, in a way, kind of, you know, just made like kind of F for fake about other side of the wind, but his version. And he did, when I, I remember seeing it when it was done and just being like, or seeing like, you know, one of the almost done cuts and just being like, oh my God, like, you know, again, and kind of up against, you know, this huge story and this, you know, um, and this gigantic figure and, you know, just having, you know, the guts to just totally go for it and make exactly the movie you wanted to make, which is what he did. And he did, and I thought he did a great job. He told the story, you know, really beautifully. And he, you know, you know, when you're writing a book, there are always these panic points, like I was saying, you know, like I'll never finish, but it's like, you know, you, you always have these moments where you're like, Oh, I'll never get this. I'll never get that. And you know, I never said, you know, he always knew exactly what he was doing, even when we didn't know where it was going. That was really cool. And I think he really did a great job of evoking, telling the same story I told in the book in a totally different way, you know, being really playful with it, I thought, but also really presenting this story about Wells that, you know, had not been seen and doing it in a way that, you know, really humanized Wells. You got all the different sides of them. So I, I thought a great working relationship, you know, and with the other people who worked on it as well. But he was, you know, it was just, it was amazing to watch what, what Morgan did with it. Yeah. That editing style in it is, it's what really drew me in and kept me going with it, especially when it's basically Orson commenting on his own story. I mean that I thought he just took all that different stuff and just did it so beautifully and took stuff, you know, what was really neat too, is he took stuff that was not in the film, but there were, you know, scenes that were not used and use them you know, really effectively to give, you know, cause here's this film, you know, that Orson, you know, shot endless footage of, and there was just all this great stuff that, you know, had no place in the actual movie, but were, was great for the documentary. Putting it together the way he did was really impressive because, you know, structure, st- structuring a story like that is not easy and being able to do it in a way that is, that both works as a story and is really artful and impactful is not easy. So you were probably one of the most biased persons I can actually ask this question to, but once you finally saw Other Side of the Wind, what did you think? This fall, I wrote a story for uh, for Esquire about um, Dennis Hopper's film, The Last Movie, which is kind of like his version of The Other Side of the Wind, which is a lot more cocaine and, and altitude, um, you know, they shot in Peru. That was, you know, kind of like a film about a film about a film about a film, and, you know, and he's living the experience that the characters living and just all this, this crazy stuff. One of the things that really struck me was, you know, for, you know, whatever, however, you know, drugged up Hopper was and however, you know, nuts he was, you know, he was really a guy who viewed himself as an artist and really took what he did seriously. And there's a moment that I saw, like he was on uh, something like Mike Douglas or Merv Griffin's show and the movie had come out and he knew that the studio hated it. And he was trying to explain the movie. And he said, you know, I, 
it's you know I know it's a lot to ask of an audience, but I think it's the kind of movie that if you see it like four or five times, you really get it. And I just remember being like, well, that's like the like who would ever ask an audience to see something four or five times? He's like, but you get it more and more. And with other side of the wind, you know, so the first time I saw it was um, saw it all put together was in um, at the um, at the in Venice at the film festival because we were showing the documentary there. They showed the movie first, and then I just yeah, I was it was just kind of like wow, I'm seeing this on the screen. You know, that was really my reaction the first time. But I was like, huh, I'm not sure what to make of it. And then I saw it again in in New York, um, and they had showed the documentary before it in New York. And uh, my brother-in-law went with us, and um, and for and first of all, the whole reaction, the whole feel of showing it after the documentary was so different than showing it before the documentary because it provided it provided context for people. But what was really interesting was, I you know, I watched it again, and I was like, oh my god, I'm getting all this stuff I didn't get before, and I'm seeing all these you know details and levels of you know story and. And all that, you know, and, I, here, and here I am, I'm somebody who worked on, you know, a book about the thing for three years, you know, worked on a documentary about it for a year and a half. And here I am going like, oh, wait, wow, what's that? Picking up new things. And my brother-in-law, who's like super smart, like wild educated guy, I talked to him later in the week and he's like, I literally, and he's not a, like a big movie person. He goes, I have not stopped thinking about that movie. He's like, there are all these things I just keep thinking about having seen it and that to me you know i think it's a it, you know it, it it genuinely is a movie that i think as you watch it more and more you get more and more out of it and it just begs more and more questions it's not like a you know it's not like going to see a movie you know what i mean it's not like going to see the avengers you know or going to see you know even a fairly artful film today it's really seeing like this very complicated story, you know, about, you know, this made by this, you know, guy who is a genius and you really do. I don't know that I need to see it 500 times to get every single ounce of meaning out, <laughs> out of it, but it, it really is. I mean, it, it's fraught with all kinds of uh, stuff that I, even I, you know, with whatever time I put in on this was like, Oh wow. You know, like I noticed new stuff every time I saw it and it wasn't just like some little thing. It was always like, Whoa, that's, you know, that's complicated. So, so I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I loved, you know, I loved John Houston in it. I thought he was spectacular as that character. And, uh, you know, one of those guys who's able to play a fairly unlikable guy in a way that's so incredibly likable. And, uh, and I thought Bogdanovich was, was great in it, you know, kind of playing a version of himself, the, the cinematography and all those things, which are things I don't ordinarily notice, you know, in editing which is something that I don't necessarily notice when I just go see a movie and, you know, struck by those things. So I, I really enjoyed it, but it's just, it's not like, it's hard to say, you know, like, what did I think of it? Because I'm, you know, I've just been so deeply into it. And then it's not your average movie. You know, it's not like writing about, you know, the day the clown cried and then it comes out and you go like, wow, that was either a lot better or a lot worse than I thought it was going to be. It's a whole different experience because of the topic and, and the person who made it. You must have been seeing it in a really different way than other people see it, since you're so intimate with the knowledge as far as like when things were shot, how things were put together. Like, were you looking for like, is that the back of Rich Little's head rather than actual Bogdanovich kind of thing? Totally. I mean, well, Rich Little is in a scene, <laughs> which which I thought, and I'm sure you know, I don't think Orson had put that in there. I think you know they must have put that in there. But what was so great about it is. 
that it was like very, you know, like Wells would do this stuff, you know, where he's like, okay, well, you know, we can use that. You know, something like, you know, some weird thing would happen. He'd be like, you know, just keep that in there. That's great. We'll use that. And, you know, not wanting to waste things. And here's the scene of like Rich Little and he's not in character. You know, he's, he's doing Bogdanovich's part, but he's not identifiable as Bogdanovich's character. So they just put it in there. And I was like, why? Wait, <laughs> like, wait, wait, how did Rich Little get in there? But, you know, it, it kind of works, and, it, and it's like, a, you know, it was, it was funny to see that. But, yeah, I mean, of, of course, you know, you're looking for all kinds of stuff, and you're going like, you know, okay, is that Bogdanovich's house, or is that the house in Beverly Hills Orson rented, or is that in Arizona, you know, or is that in Spain? Because, you know, he shot this thing all over the place and over the course of so many years. Um, in fact, there's that, that, that scene in the nightclub in the bathroom. I remember one of the editors saying, you know, like, you, you literally watch Oya Kodar age from like 32 to 35 over the course of the scene, you know, because it was shot so many times. <laughs> it's like, like, and that's the time, and, and you know, where, you know, you know, people start to, you know, look a little bit different. So, you know, I, I, I would be like, Oh God, does she look older there? You know, or does she, you know, does she look, you know, is it this or is it that, you know, but it was really kind of remarkable that it comes together as a movie. I mean, I, I just remember being staggered when writing about it, you know, the idea of shooting, you know, half of one scene in Arizona with, you know, two people and then shooting the other half, you know, in Spain with another person and having it all look like they're in the same place talking to each other. Um, that, that just like completely, it was like, like nerve wracking to even just think about doing that. And here I was doing it for you know, writing about 40 years later. And I was like, Ooh, <laughs> like I, I lose my mind. So, Seeing how all that came together, I thought was really interesting. I was always looking for that kind of stuff, looking to see if it really hung together, you know, as a movie in a visual sense and in the sense of like, okay, well, those people really do seem like they're in the same room. Okay, that that worked. They did that, you know, and I, that's why he made movies. <laughs> like he, I think he loved that stuff. He loved, you know, the degree of difficulty, doing things kind of on the run and, and doing things, you know, where he was shooting things two years apart the same scene in different places. So yeah, so I was, so to answer, you know, your question, yeah, I was looking for all kinds of stuff. So what was your day to day on the love me when I'm dead? Like how involved were you on that? It would be like on and off. I would get, you know, like I, interviews, I wound up doing, I don't know what the breakdown was as to what percentage I did and what percentage Morgan did, but you know, there would just be, you know, like times where they go like, okay, you know, why don't you come out to LA and let's knock off, you know, four or five interviews. Um, and then, you know, then, and then there were some people like, you know, who I just interviewed remotely. Like, I mean, we did a lot of it based on, you know, who was somebody I, some of it was based on how busy Morgan was. And some of it was based on, you know, whether who, you know, like if I had the relationship, a relationship with the person that was going to make it a better, you know, where Morgan was like, you know, you'd be the better person to do that interview, you know, or people I knew who had specific stories, um, that I could get out of them. So, so yeah, so I mean, it was, it was, you know, not like a full-time, full-time job going to go like, you know, a month and a half without doing anything. And then all of a sudden have a lot of activity and then go, you know, another month and then have, you know, a decent amount of activity. So, um, but it was, it was, it was so, you know, mostly I, I was involved in doing interviews and then a lot of answering questions. Um, and a lot of, you know, we, we would have, you know, kind of like regular meetings on the phone and just kind of talk about, what was what and what went where and, and things like that. And then a couple of times I was out there and I spent some time with, you know, watch the editors work and, you know, and would end 
would say, oh, you know, you know, and this really was not a major contribution, by the way. I'm not <laughs> at all suggesting that. But, you know, I'd be like, hey, you know, like, there's a really great line from this interview with this person that could go right there. And what was really cool about it was just seeing, you know, with the technology they have, seeing somebody go, oh, okay. And literally in 10 seconds, like looking up a three word, three words I mentioned and a person's name and being able to pull that audio file and just toss it right in exactly where I was like, yeah, do it right there. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's like very godlike <laughs> feeling. You know, you're like, well, I just say it and it happened. But uh, yes, I mean, I, you know, so mostly I was involved in interviewing and then, you know, Morgan was really, you know, generous in terms of, you know, saying like, hey, what do you think about, you know, this, you know, and, you know, and asking for, you know, my opinion on various things. But I mean, it's, it's his, it's his movie. I mean, I was, you know, just, you know, kind of contributing, you know, what, what I knew and, 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 and my ability to kind of get the story told through a lot of the interviews and knowing what, what the people could say and what they hadn't said before that was worth having them say now. So that, that was kind of the way it worked. And at the same time, are you being pulled in at all with a futile and stupid gesture? Or is that pretty much, you know, yeah, writer, you'll come to the premiere when we invite you, maybe, if you're lucky. John Abood and Mike Colton, who wrote the script, you know, we had gotten to know each other fairly well because they had written the script like four years probably before anything even happened um, in terms of getting it made. So, I mean, I knew those guys pretty well. And when they, when things started moving and started moving fast, I was, you know, on the phone with them on a pretty regular basis, you know, answering questions. Some, you know, because things change when you start shooting and, you know, you start going like, okay, well, you know, we can't do that. Or, or what, why are we doing that? And what is this person really thinking? Or what does this mean? So I would, you know, they would, we were in pretty regular contact leading up to the shoot and during the early parts of the shoot. And, you know, and sometimes they were just, you know, insane questions, you know, like I, I can't remember one off the top of my head, but it was literally like down to like, you know, what color was the bong kind of stuff, you know, like that, that type of thing. Um, and then I spent uh, like three or four days out on the set when they were shooting, which I don't think I really did anything. I basically just got to meet. They were really, I mean, I had the opposite experience of what I think most writers have. I wasn't like intimately involved in making it, but it was, you know, I didn't, they were, everybody was just great to me. You know, when I was out there, you know, got to, you know, kind of meet everybody who was in it, you know, a couple people, you know, like would, you know, say like, Oh, what do you think about this or that? You know, and I, I'd say what, you know, whatever, you know, I, I had recalled from writing the book, but, you know, mostly, you know, I mean, they were really generous in the way they treated me throughout the entire experience. So I didn't come away going, you know, like, Oh, you know, they just totally ditched me, <laughs> you know, it's funny because, you know, you always hear all these people with these horror stories about all the people they deal with, you know, and, you know, in the movie business and in a couple of projects I've worked on that, you know, and, and including other versions of feudal and stupid gesture that did not happen. My experiences have been really great. You know, on the set of the film, you know, like every, you know, David Wayne, who directed was really great that, you know, Joel McHale was great. You know, I spent some time with him, Donald Gleason, who I kind of stole the movie. I thought as uh, Henry Beard was, was great. And I, you know, spent some time with him and I, you know, talked to Will Forte and he was great. I mean, everybody was like, there was no like big Hollywood jerk. You know what I mean? There was nobody who was acting like, uh, you know, like they were important and nobody, you know, 
it was um, it was nice. It was really it was a it was a really nice group of people, which I'm not sure can be said of most film sets. Yeah, I liked everybody involved. I did not have that like writer's nightmare experience, and you know, I guess the only thing you know, and this is not a nightmare at all, is you know, I, I after you hear so many writers complain about what they do you know, to, to their story and, you know, what they do and they make the film. I mean, I, you know, it was it's their movie, you know what I mean? And I was interested to see what they did with it. I mean, I think in both cases, even working on the documentary, you know, it's, I enjoy seeing, you know, writing something and then having somebody else who can add a totally different element to it, take it and do something else with it and to see what they did, you know? So I was never like, Oh, you know, why didn't they get this or why didn't they get that? You know what I mean? Like I, I that just, it never occurred to me. I mean, I guess it was a horrible movie. I might've felt differently. You know, I thought they did a really good job and like, and I, you know, and it's their story and same with, you know, the documentary. I mean, it was really, you know, it became Morgan's story and I was interested to see what he did with it. And in both cases, I was really fortunate because they both, I thought did really good jobs, you know, that I was, I was proud to be involved with. You know, I didn't, I never had, a, I, there was nothing I watched in either film where I was like, Oh, that boy, did they, you know, wreck that. I was, I was, I was very happy with, with how both turned out. What's the timeline between these as far as when the two projects come out? Feudal and Stupid Jester came out in February, 2008, last fe- February of last year. It was at Sundance. And then, um, the Love Me When I'm Dead came out in uh, September of, of last year. So there was, you know, like, a seven months in between the two. I, I, I'm hoping to continue having experiences like that, but I'm not sure that I'm going to have two in the same year like that. <laughs> I mean, I remember being kind of like, wow, we're going to Sundance. This is really wild. I can't, I never thought I'd go to the Sundance Film Festival and I'm being like, oh, wow, I'm going to the Venice Film Festival in the same year. Like, this is, you know, this is, you know, kind of like, I'm not, I was very aware of not getting used to it. <laughs> you know, and I'm being like, I should, I should appreciate that this is happening in the same year because, you know, I will I'll be very depressed in the future if I think that this is like, you know, what's going to happen all the time. So, yeah, so it, it was, it was, you know, pretty, pretty close together. I mean, as far as, you know, that kind of thing goes, I mean, it was all, you know, one, one finished up and the other one started up. So, so as these projects are going on, are you still writing? I know you're probably still teaching at the same time. I stopped teaching. Writing was just more both, you know, financially, it was, I, I do better writing than I do teaching. And then also, you know, kind of creatively, obviously I enjoy, I mean, I like teaching, but I kind of was like, okay, what do I like more? And I really like writing a lot more. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was still, I was still writing and working on, on other things, um, you know, doing, you know, magazine stuff and, uh, you know, I wrote a couple TV pilots and, uh, you know, just got involved in a whole bunch of other different things, um, you know, and consulting and, uh, another documentary and just doing all kinds of other stuff. So it's been fun. I mean, it's really opened up the opportunity to work, you know, more in TV and film, which is, you know, I really enjoy you know, after 20, you know, almost 20 years of, of just writing, you know, and, and having it mostly be everything happening in my head, you know, and sitting in, in my office and, you know, doing interviews and then writing. I really, I collaborating with other people is, is a real welcome <laughs> relief, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to do that. It, I, I really enjoyed my experiences, um, you know, doing, doing TV and film stuff and, and hope, you know, hopefully we'll be able to continue doing that. And in, in addition to, to books and, and, and magazine stuff. 
What kind of books and magazine stuff have you been working on? Well, so I started, you know, doing the stuff for Esquire. Um, so I, I did the Dennis Hopper uh, story, and then I did um, this profile Bob Rafelson. And then I'm working on some other, you know, assignments for them. Um, mo- mostly film-related stuff, which is good, because, I mean, that is that is one thing I really, I, you know, I really love writing about about film because it's just, you know, every movie is its own weird adventure and, and every person, you know, it's, you know, it's a, you know, a subject that lends itself to really larger than life, you know, kind of outsized experiences and people, Um, which, which I think as I look back on stuff, I really enjoyed writing about. That's what I like to write about is people who are living lives that are not necessarily like, like other people's. So I've been doing that stuff for them, and then uh, I have a book proposal out that is wholly unrelated. That is um, about a guy who was uh, a real life guy who was kind of a self created detective, corporate fixer, spy, kind of like and like kind of a zealot of the 20th century. Who like he was just always in the middle of everything that was happening. You know, he was like just there. You know, he was he was involved in the Profumo affair. He was involved. You know, with Roy Cohn and all kinds of stuff. He was involved in, you know, espionage in World War II. He was, you know, just kind of everywhere and doing everything. And he was this kind of enigmatic, self-created, larger-than-life figure. So, um, so I, I, I worked on a, you know, book proposal about that, which just went out about a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, just, just other stuff, you know, a TV pilot that I had worked on and, um, and some other stuff like that. So, I've been lucky. I mean, and those and the both films made it, you know made it possible for me to do some other stuff too. It really exceeded my wildest dreams in terms of what if I looked back five years and thought that any of this was going to happen. I was not thinking five years ago that I would be you know having you know two films come out in the same year and 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 being able. Yeah, I mean, I mean, really, you know, I, it's funny because you just kind of throw yourself out there when you're a writer and just kind of keep hoping you move forward every five years. I've always kind of looked back and go like, wow, I would have been just happy with that. You know, whatever I got to five years before I would have been very happy with, with where I got. So like, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm real lucky to be writing for Esquire and getting to do fun, you know, good assignments for them. And, uh, I'm just lucky to, you know, have been able to make this a career and, and, and be able to follow stories that I want to follow instead of, you know, having to write stuff that, is being dictated to me that I'm not necessarily that interested in. Well, your piece on Bob Rafelson was fantastic, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. That that was like giving birth. That was like literally that was like triplets. That was the longest I worked on that forever, and it was like the, one of the most difficult things. Really, more difficult to write than anything I think I've ever written. In some ways, there were just a lot of a lot of challenges. But that, thank you, I appreciate it. it was um, I'm glad it came out. That was the big thing is I was like, oh my God, you know, this is never going to happen. This is, I, I, I never felt like I really had it for a long time because it was just a tough story. And, uh, and he's, he's great. I mean, Bob was great to write about, but you know, also, you know, not, you know, not the easiest guy in the world to write about complicated guy. And, you know, and it was like a real relationship that we, <laughs> we formed because it went on for a long time. Um, you know, and he was frustrated at times and, you know, and then, and, and I was, very aware of his frustration and, uh, and I'm, I'm glad, I mean, he, I think he's very happy with how it came out and I'm really happy with how it came out because it was you know, tough. And, you know, you're writing about a guy who, unless you're a big movie person, you know, and unless you're over a certain age, 
you know, you really have to reintroduce, you have to introduce who he is to people who probably don't even know what Easy Rider is, you know, which presented a challenge. You know, it's not writing about somebody who everybody's like, oh, I've seen that guy. And he just operated, you know, he's, he's a person who, you know, like they, they do not manufacture people like Bob Rafelson anymore. You know, there aren't people operating around Hollywood who are punching producers and, you know, and, and, and doing all kinds of, you know, and, and like living this crazy adventurous lifestyle and, you know, telling these big stories and, and killing themselves. I mean, there are, people are doing all these things individually, but I think kind of all in the same package, the way Bob was, you know, is, is very hard to explain to people, you know, but fun to write about. And, um, and then, you know, he was really the whole reason he did it was because he wanted to talk about Mountains of the Moon, which of course, you know, like you can, it's, it's a really good movie, but it's also hard because first you got to introduce people to Bob and then you have to be like, Oh, by the way, what he really, what this really has to be about is this movie that he loved making that was unseen. And that's why he wants to do this. Um, so you kind of have to explain why, what that is and why that's important. And then, put it all together. But it, it, it finally came out well. I, I still kind of don't know how, how it did <laughs> in a way. Like I, I kind of look at it and I go like, okay, I guess it makes sense. I thought that worked. So, but yeah, he was great. Bob was, was, was fascinating to write about. And I got to interview really um, great people who are kind of, you know, iconic, you know, during my lifetime, you know, like, like Bruce Stern and, and Nicholson and people like that. And I, I will say that interviewing Jack Nicholson was literally I think it's been 15 years since I was really genuinely intimidated by somebody I was interviewing. And that was like one of the most nerve wracking experiences of my entire life. It was insane. Cause like, I, it was, it was funny. Like he, you know, he's one of Bob's closest friends, um, but he's, you know, he's Jack Nicholson. So he's, you know, he's got an assistant and it's like, you know, one of those, you know, things of it's like, you know, there will be a right time, but it's, it's not today. Keep asking. And his assistant was great. And then one day it was like, I just kind of randomly asked and they were like, yeah, can you be ready in 45 minutes? And it was on the phone. And if I'd ever had the presence of mind to be like, it'd be really good to have a drink right now before I do this, I would have gone and gotten a drink because I had no time to, you know, I, I had time to prepare, but I was just, I was like paralyzed. And, uh, you know, and he gets on the phone and, and, and it's, it's easier face to face with people when they're kind of like Jack Nicholson because you're two human beings. But when people are on the phone, you know, my, my experience with, you know, whatever people I've, I've interviewed who are kind of like, you know, you know, famous is that they're always kind of like, you know, a somewhat dialed down version of themselves. And he was him. He was himself. And I was like, Oh shit. You know, <laughs> like this is Jack Nicholson, you know, like, <laughs> and he wasn't, you know, dialing it back. And I, I, for the first 15 minutes, I don't even know that I said anything that made sense. Like my mouth was dry and I was like, um, uh, blah, blah, you know, like just acting like a crazy person. Um, but he was great. I mean, you know, but it was, it was really, I, I was literally shaking for the first 15 or 20 minutes. I was on the phone with him and, and had no idea what I was saying or what I was doing. And, uh, but he's, he's great. He's a super smart guy you know, which I think people don't always, you know, say, you know, think of that when they think of him, you know, I mean, not that they don't think he's smart, but he's, he's really a smart person and he was very insightful. That was really cool. And Bruce Dern was great. And Alexander Payne was a huge help in terms of kind of putting, uh, 
you know, putting Rafelson in perspective and was just really a wonderful guy who was really helpful and, you know, like really made an effort in a way that I think, you know, most people don't, you know, he was like, Oh, I'll rewatch that movie. <laughs> Tell you what I think. And I was like, wow, you're a really, you're a really good guy. <laughs> you know, like you, do, you don't expect that people are going to be like that. And he was really, he was terrific. So yeah. So it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was really a fun experience, but also, you know, like more intimidating than, than most of the things I've, I've done in a way. and we're talking about the other side of the wind. Now, Rob, I know you already mentioned the two documentaries that are there, and I know that this came up in the conversation, but I want to emphasize again that if people don't know, if you go on Netflix and you click on trailers, there's actually a extra sitting there. I really think that Netflix needs to figure out how they're going to do extras when it comes to this stuff, or just put it out as its own 40-minute film would have been nice. That's the Final Cut for Orson documentary, which I found super fascinating, though I also loved They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. And it, yeah, it must have been really kind of a weird experience for you, because I watched They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, and then I watched Other Side of the Wind, and I think you did it opposite, yeah, I watched Other Side of the Wind first, and then I watched The Love Me When I'm Dead, and then I watched The Final Cut for Orson just a few days ago. Yeah, because I really think you need to watch the two documentaries before you see Other Side of the Wind, so you can kind of prepare yourself and get into that mindset. Part of it for me was I didn't want to do that because I wanted to go into the film as the film and just deal with the film as what it was. And then get sort of the background knowledge. Like, for example, I have, it's one of the few books that I bought, like the notes book. Like there was a guy who did a book on uh, Blood Meridian. So Cormac McCarthy's novel. So I read the book and then I read this notes on Blood Meridian where this guy goes in, basically goes, okay, this is a reference to this, this is a reference to that, basically annotated. And then I went back and I read it again. So first I had to deal with it as its own piece of art. Then I dealt with the analysis and background and then i read it again and i'm like okay now it's richer for me because i have this context but it to me it needs to hold up without any context like you just have to deal you just have to grapple with it as what it is i'm gonna get off my soapbox now final cut for orson really documents the enormous undertaking of putting the film back together at it after it had been sitting for so long there was so so many tiny little reels of film. And it's a testament to not just what Orson <clears throat> went through to, to make the film, but the production team who put it together afterwards had to go through. There was at one point, one mention of uh, checking frames to uh, the negative. Uh, the word two trillion frame comparisons were made. Two trillion I and mean, it's like the mind boggles. 
it's amazing that it, that once they started getting going, that it took a relatively little period of time, just a matter of months, but an enormous amount of work was done. This gives me a lot of hope for things like Caligula to actually get the director's version of that out there and other movies where we might have missing or lost or misplaced reels of film that might finally be discovered and be able to be cleaned up and redone and put into place. But this is so groundbreaking. And then looking at things like Morowski's, just his timeline on his editing screen, I was just like, holy shit, look at all those little clips on there. That is fucking crazy. I've noticed that whenever I have an idea, it usually means someone's already been working on it for five years. But with the technology the way it is right now, and with different applications that are are used and getting more and more commonly used, uh, for example, the notorious fake apps, we're familiar with that. Right, the deep fake stuff, where you can see Steve Buscemi's face on Jennifer Lawrence's body or things like that. Adobe has a program called Voco, where you feed a sound of a person's voice, uh, voice like 20-minute sample. And then that character, that person with, at the computer, you can spit out a different script for them to read with that person's voice. So just think of the possibilities here. Yeah, for example, we're talking about Wells, Magnificent Ambersons. Speculation here. You get actors and actresses dressed up like the characters. Uh, in their costume, you got a cutting continuity, which shows the entire 132-minute cut, Wells rough cut. You have storyboards. You have shots of uh, production stills of, of the scenes that were cut from the movie. Deep fake some faces over actors who, are, who would be doing uh, the scene. Put the script into the VOCO program. You can have Joseph Cotton saying his lines. Uh, 3D modeling, uh, the production photos, like I said, and the, and the uh, uh, storyboards. Bernard Herrmann's complete score exists and has been recorded. All these elements you can put together. I think it can be done now that you can recreate the missing footage from Magnificent Ambersons as just one example. But there, you know, there's other things like there's a few clips in the trailer for Magnificent Ambersons that were brief moments from this film, from scenes that were cut. Three different examples of that. So the elements are there, and you can do that and any other number of of these Unfinished Wells projects that have that kind of material available, uh, cutting continuities and storyboards and production photos. And, you know, you talk about your wish list, Mike, and, and there's hundreds of films that probably maybe in similar probably maybe uh, are in similar condition or there's similar possibilities with it would not have this. It would not have a soul. And I, I'm probably not taking one or two things into consideration, but what are, what was deep fake made for? What, what is Voco made for? I mean, I think the tech, the technology is heading in that kind of direction where the idea is to make people say things that they wouldn't ordinarily say and to put their faces in places where they wouldn't ordinarily ordinarily be. I I think that the creative impetus is there to do that. People have tried uh, in one way or another. The TCM had uh, a four-hour version of Greed that they cut with uh, uh, production photos. Uh, Lars von Trier used, uh, what's her name, Charlotte Gainsbourg 
there are scenes in Nymphomaniac where it's her head seamlessly put atop of an X-rated actress's body for some of the more pornographic scenes. And you can't tell. They put a fake body on Jessica Beals or Jessica Alba in uh, one of the Rodriguez films. You know, where this all started was with um, a commercial. I remember when I was a kid, it was Gene Kelly dancing with a vacuum, I think it was. And they were like, oh, that's it. They're going to be able to animate dead Hollywood people and put them into new movies. And I remember that. Well, they did it with Laurence Olivier in Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow in 2004. And I think he actually looked better than Peter Cushing in Rogue One a couple years ago. But the, th- the thing is, the technology exists today that could make that happening uh, ha- possible, and it's just going to get better. The technology will improve. So I, I believe that there may be somebody working on something like that in their basement or something right now, even as we speak. So I wouldn't be surprised. But it's amazing. I mean, have you guys seen that commercial for a particular insurance company where you got two squirrels fist bumping each other and giving each other high fives? I think I know, and I think I saved 15% on my car insurance because of those squirrels. But that's an example of what I'm talking about. That's not real, but it sure as hell looks real. Realistic squirrels, and you know that that was done using contemporary technology. That's the only way to do that. There's going to be the impetus to do that. And so I, not now, not five years from now, maybe 20 years from now, someone will have something that may seem, you probably will be able to tell it somehow or other, but... Uh, technology the way it is, there's going to be the interest in seeing that type of thing. Well, yeah, I just saw a recent commercial with Audrey Hepburn, a fake Audrey Hepburn. I was just like, this looks like garbage, but eventually it'll look good. That's what I'm afraid of is because right now so many things look like garbage. And I don't know if it's that people are used to video game quality cutscenes kind of stuff. But I watch something like Rogue One, and I see the way that they treated Carrie Fisher, and I want to throw up. It just looks awful. But I get into discussions, and people are like, oh, that looked absolutely fine. I really thought it was her. And it's like, no, that looked terrible. What is your problem? We're seeing the DH father from uh, Aquaman, and I'm like, this is a living nightmare. What are you guys doing? Don't do this unless you can do it well. Why is it that Zelig looked better than the bullshit you're putting out on screens in 2019. Zelig, when that came out, I was really impressed with it. And that stuff, to me, looked better than Forrest Gump. I mean, it's like, it's easy if you try. It's like, oh, God, that was terrible. What are you doing? Well, a lot of it could have something to do with uh, the nature of Zelig. A lot of it is historical and black and white. And that may be easier to work with when you're doing that type of thing. I don't know. But, you know, Magnus and Amber's in black and white. <laughs> I'm just suggesting it to anybody who's a, a, a genius out there, a wizard. And trust me, only geniuses listen to the show. So we're talking to the right audience. That's right, genius. This whole thing really put a finer point on the whole Steven Spielberg versus Netflix thing for me. Because you guys might remember from the first time that we talked about other side of the wind or stories about other side of the wind, the whole idea of Orson Welles going out to dinner with Steven Spielberg and probably Amy Irving, or it might've been Kate Capshaw by that time. I'm not sure. And basically coming out with an empty hat and like, Hey, Steven, you're the new golden kid. 
how about, you know, maybe ponying up a little money and help me out here with the old movie and Spielberg just being completely, oh, uh, tell me more about this shot in Citizen Kane and eventually I'm going to buy the sled and all this kind of stuff. Just basically like, fuck off, Orson, I don't want to talk about it. And then years and years later, Netflix is the one that ponies up all the money for completion funds, and then Spielberg starts having a war with Netflix. And I'm just like, come on, dude. Uh, who's really interested in film here? You know, Netflix, they do a lot of shitty things, but they're the ones who are ponying up the money, putting hard cash behind this idea of other side of the wind. That's more than you could do, Steven. And then to 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 make it even worse was like a few months after that, or maybe maybe even weeks, when it's just like, oh, hey, I'm Steven Spielberg, and I love Apple TV. And it's just like, oh, fuck you, Steven. You know, the problem I had with him and his anti-Netflix rant uh, goes back a few years ago where it was both him and George Lucas going, you know what the problem is with movies nowadays? Blockbusters. Man, these blockbusters are just killing everything. To which I remember posting the story on Facebook and going, yeah, it's like a Coke dealer saying, man, there's a lot of people hooked on cocaine around here. It's like, dude, you fucking created that. And now you're going to sit here and go, oh, it's so awful. Shut up and go do whatever it is that you do when you're not making films. And it was essentially those two guys who brought an end to that brief period of time, which uh, independent film in Hollywood or the equivalent of a Hollywood independent film, the smart young filmmakers, the movie brat generation, those guys in a way brought the end of it because, because specifically because of the blockbusters and yeah, you know, I'm not going to begrudge anybody, you know, wanting to make a, a blockbuster film and being successful, but you're right. It's kind of hypocritical when Spielberg sent, spent like a hundred thousand dollars on one of the rosebud sleds or whatever it was he paid for it. And then I heard the story that he left Wells with the tab for that dinner on top of everything. Like, sure, I'll be glad to to go to dinner with you. And thinking all along, I'm going to stiff him with a tab. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't come across very nicely in that story. If we're going to ride the, um, the Spielberg pony here, my favorite one of his is from uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, where the Oscars were going to be announced for the year that Jaws was. He expected Jaws to be nominated. So he called the press to his office. And when it was announced, and Fellini was announced, I think, his director, he said, I can't believe they picked Fellini over me. I don't have a lot of respect for him sometimes. Like, some of the work is good, some of it isn't in my mind. I know he's a big part of my childhood, but uh, sometimes I don't know what he's thinking with some of the comments he makes. Yeah, if you want to be reminded what a big part of your, of your childhood he was, watch that Ready Player One movie. That's just, it's like a wash with nostalgia. I haven't even looked at the poster, I don't think. You're better off. Okay. All right, guys, let's wrap it up. Ken, what have you been up to lately, sir? Earlier this year, I had a flurry of activity. I helped out with a local notorious art show. I spent some time on that. I edited a video for a notorious local uh, performer. Uh, a lot of notorious people in your life. Here. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I feel like I'm in good company. Yeah, and... uh the band's still going, and we are, as ever, creating new music, which we are forever really fastidious about how to present it. 
you know, having fun doing that. And I'm going to Europe in a few weeks, too. So looking forward to that. And Rob, what is the latest with you? I'm good. I'm still wrapping up the, the final details on my Detroit Punk Archive project. So that's DetroitPunkArchive.com. And I'll have an announcement probably in the next month or two in relation to the record collection that will be coming out, the compilation of tracks both uh, released back in the day on 7-inch mostly and then some some really cool demos that I've been able to get my hands on. I can't really say who they're from yet, but it's going to be some good stuff, some good tracks. And then I'm working on a few writing projects, and hopefully I'll have something to say about Film Threat soon. As I've talked about Film Threat in the past on a project I'm working on with Chris Gore, so I'm hoping that'll come together. I'll have something to tell you maybe in June, July. I don't know. We'll see. Well, you'll be back on the show pretty soon. I think we're recording an episode on Total Recall coming up here in May. Yeah, I'm trying to remember that wholesale. We'll see. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.